You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. I gotta get construction crews in here by Columbus Day, so you gotta guess for how long? I've got four really good guys. One week, we're gone. That's fast. I need the job. So the loonies are outside in the real world, and here we are with the keys to the loony bin, boys. <laughs> you might actually want to be grateful, and you're about to make some decent money. What's the catch? Patricia Willard scandal, 1984. I want you to try to remember what happened 24 years ago. Use your imagination. The shrinks figured that with these new techniques they designed, they could release hidden memories. You can me. You okay? I want to go home. I wouldn't tell anybody about this. If they find out about Hank, they're going to find out about the others. Quit of the others. When I come home, I am so sorry. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I am your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Axel Cohagen. Greetings and salutations. Also back in the booth with us is Mr. Jedediah Ayers. I'd rather sleep in the streets, personally, but then I'm not nuts. This week, we are looking at Session 9, directed by Brad Anderson and co-written by Anderson and Stephen Gavadon. The film was released in 2001 and stars Peter Mullen as the head of a team of guys who are taking out the asbestos from a psychiatric institution. As the story unfolds, we learn more about Gordon as well as one of the patients of the asylum whose story mirrors his. We're going to be getting into spoiler territory galore on this movie. So if you haven't seen Session 9, please turn off this episode and come on back after you have seen the movie. We will still be here. So, Axel, this was a film that you requested a long time ago. And that said, when was the first time you saw Session 9 and what did you think? I first saw it on video in the early 2000s after it had really been hyped up to me. And I watched it and I thought it was one of the more disappointing, underwhelming films I'd seen in a long time, and I immediately forgot about it, but other people didn't. And so in 2013, 14, somewhere in there, I decided to give it another go, being significantly older, and it became one of my favorite horror films, because a lot of the issues in this are pretty grown up. I think the things in Session 9 that scare me, I was too young and dumb to be frightened of when I was 22, 23 years old. How about you, Chad? It was fairly fairly recent to video when I saw it. I think I read a review of it when it was playing briefly theatrically, and it, it caught my eye. So I saw it, you know, I think it came out in 2001, so I must have seen it when it came out on video, uh, 2001, 2002. And I wasn't underwhelmed by it. Uh, I was intrigued by it, but I grew to appreciate it and like it a lot more with multiple viewings, I bought it on VHS and I watched it several times. And I really expected 
Brad Anderson, I remember thinking, you know, this one and, and Christopher Nolan's Memento came out, you know, fairly close together. And I kept thinking, those two guys are going to be peers, you know. Uh, we're going to really go forward with these uh, interesting psychological thriller filmmakers. And, and uh, I really expected really huge, huge things from, from Anderson. And I I'm, know I'm, he works a lot, but uh, Session 9 is probably probably his best film. I don't remember when I saw this the first time. It was one of those, like, actually, you came to me and you're like, oh, you should do Session 9. I'm like, I know I've seen that movie and I remember it being okay because movies like this aren't necessarily my cup of tea like the slow burn really super spooky i think i might have gotten it mixed up with a movie from 2007 called the devil's chair which had kind of a similar like let's go into asylum and scare ourselves ridiculous kind of a, a plot to it and i just kind of mix those two up in my mind but then when i went back and i revisited session nine probably about three or four years ago, I was really impressed and I really enjoyed it. And then I was, I was like, okay, yeah, let, let's do it up, put it on the schedule, you know, three years hence or whatever. And now we're finally talking about it. So I'm so excited because this movie does get its hooks into you and sticks with you. And the more I see it, the more I appreciate it. And the more I find every single time I watch it. So it's one of those that you just continually get rewarded by experiencing this film. We're at a really interesting point to revisit it because even though this is an all-male cast, this movie has a place in the Me Too movement and discussion about how men behave and what it means to handle anger and frustration as a man that fits in nicely with other conversations people are having. It, the movie has aged really well. Yeah, it's also, I think, uh, the first digital film I remember watching it going – now, that looks like something. That looks like they're doing interesting things with uh, digital. I thought it was a good-looking film. Looking at it now, uh, I see you know some of it looks like TV or something like that. But they, they do some really nice things with uh, digital that I think helped me appreciate the possibilities for the medium. Yeah, it definitely doesn't have that VHS-ish kind of look that we were seeing around that time. Um, you know, there were, this was right around that moment when we were making the switch from film to, uh, embracing video technology and some people are embracing it way too early or just pushing it too much so that it started to look like hot garbage where this film there are moments where i'm like okay yeah i can tell that this is shot on video but there are a lot of moments where i can't and it does look really really good i can't imagine seeing this projected in a theater i've only experienced this on vhs and dvd i've never seen this theatrically and i'd be curious how it looks in a theater because I know that they were, again, embracing this new technology, but really trying to use it to look as good as it possibly could, rather than just, hey, we've got this new toy that we want to play with. There's a happy accident here. When it does, particularly with aging, look a little uneven or a little halfway between film and TV, it adds to the fact that the story here is halfway between a narrative and, and what they've invented as the story and the reality of the Danvers hospital and the actual found aspect of a lot of the props and decorations within the movie. So you're right in between both worlds. 
Now, we've got a creepy mental hospital around here called Eloise, and I think it's actually been the subject of maybe one or two found footage horror films or something. And I'm curious, do you guys have your own creepy mental institution around you guys? There's a park about a block from my house, and the park is kind of straight uphill from my house, and then there's a hill in the park. And if you go to the top of the hill in the park, you can actually, I live in St. Louis, you can see uh, you can see the arch from the top of the hill, and you can see just a couple other St. Louis things around. And one of them is an old brick mental institution that still functions. And I used to drive by it on my way to uh, a job I had uh, for several years. But that's like one of the only things I can see from this hill. I can see the arch and I can see the mental institution. And yeah, when I was watching this again and, and looking at those shots of Danvers, I mean, it's not the one I've got is not uh, not near as, as gothic and, and spooky looking, but it is that brick style and, and those, you know, slanted rooftops. And, and I will, I'm sure, be associating it with uh, Session 9 from now on. Anoka, Minnesota, which is a little north of Minneapolis and St. Paul, had a psychiatric hospital for years with several or quite a few inmates. And it's closed down now, and I think some of it has been sort of repurposed to be a little bit more of a modern way of caring for people but i think it's also a pretty popular ghost hunting spot oh those ghost hunters those wacky ghost hunters the thing i love about this movie is that so much of this stuff was just there they didn't have to dress a lot of the sets and just to see you know obviously they weren't using real asbestos in this they were making these tiles and working with that kind of stuff though it's funny because i've been in a uh, my my high school growing up was just filled to the rafters with asbestos to the point where I would have like little you know snowstorms on my desk when I would come in and just wipe it clean with the asbestos that was coming off of the ceiling tiles. So I'm I'm familiar with that asbestos haze that they captured so well in this uh, movie, and it's nice because it plays into this whole idea of something can get into you and poison you. And that is one of the big things with this movie is the idea of mental illness as being almost an airborne thing. You know, is this person infected with it? And it plays out a lot. Almost our entire cast in this movie is male and it plays a little bit like, uh, like John Carpenter's the thing as far as, you know, this group of guys who are all in this enclosed space. They all have their own raison d'etre, they all have their own pressures in their lives outside of this, that we don't tend to see anyone outside of the job other than our main character of Gordon. We just have this whole idea of like, who's the infected person? It, like I said, it reminds me of the thing as far as like, who's got the alien blood in them? It could be one person, it could be all of them. And the way that we have these red herrings throughout the movie, it's like, well, who really is the carrier? And can mental illness move through the air and get into you? Can it get in through your ear by listening to tapes of crazy people? Can that infect you? Or is it something that you run across in a dark hallway? So it's this really nice metaphor for the way that you can have this cancerous material or this bad material get into you and, and change you. And that brings up two tropes that are stronger for me now. I Between my first and second viewing, I got into the, the mental health field. And rewatching this film, I saw there's just a lot of truth to it. Like you're saying, mental health and mental illnesses, in a way, they do tend to transfer, not as, as germs or something like that. But 
in terms of moods and emotions. If you grow up with an anxious parent, it, it might affect you and then bring about some anxiety in you because of the way you're dealing with it. And if you're in a job where you could be killing yourself and not know it because of asbestos and you're on a schedule, you start to get hyped up. Other people are going to start to get hyped up and you see that's what ends up with these men is they just keep getting pushed and pushed to the brink of where they should be healthy. I like it too, uh, thinking about it um, almost, uh, especially when, when we get into uh, Simon later on, who uh, can, you know, seems to have talked to the inmate Mary Hobbs, but, uh, you know, as part of her psyche, but also appears to talk to Gordon as well. He's almost like a vampire. He, he only comes in where he's invited, you know, where he, it says he preys on the, the weak and the uh, the wounded, but uh, the one of the Simon's lines is he says, uh, "Mary, let me in," you know, and they always do. I've been uh, listening to a podcast called The Monster Professor this week, and uh, he's been talking a lot about different types of monsters throughout literature and history, and and the vampire. You know, he was just listening to the vampire episode, and he was talking about the importance of uh, in the Dracula myth that. You know, he can only come where he's invited. You have to let him in, and then he takes over, and, and I was seeing parallels. And then if you read Carol J. Clover's Men, Women, and Chainsaws, she talks about how the horror in a lot of films for men is the idea of being taken over, sort of penetrated and losing their identity, which is a perfect fit with what you're talking about with vampirism. I guess I was reminded a little bit, too, of the 98 film Fallen, where you have that demon that moves from person to person to person, and the way that, you know, that demon will always be around, and you never know, again, who's the infected one and who's not, until they start singing the Rolling Stones. What was that? Time is on my side? Is that yeah, I think so, yeah. It's almost like the earworm becomes the demonic possession in that one pop song, uh, sexually transmitted disease. Yeah, it's like Lullaby by Chuck Palahniuk. The next It Follows. As the father of a two-year-old who really, really likes the song Baby Shark, I'm a little too familiar with what you're talking about. It's that, uh, what's the, the name of that horrible song about have you been eating sugar, no papa? I don't want to know. I don't want okay. my daughter to know. I've, I've already had enough. It's a bad song. Johnny, Johnny, yes, Papa. Eating sugar? No, Papa. Telling lies? No, Papa. Open your mouth? Ha, ha, ha. But that seems like a good segue into what's going on with, uh, with Gordon, with the baby at home who seems to always, always be crying. Pretty much all the photographs we see of her, uh, she's upset, and uh, the only audio we get of her there's no cooing or anything like that she's crying all the guys when they talk to gordon about it like she's still got that uh, ear infection yeah god she's had that forever hasn't she yeah and he's just crumbling he's so tired he's so exhausted and uh yeah i i remember that stage with uh with infants and toddlers uh quite a bit i'm glad i didn't kill anybody but um mm-hmm. uh it's uh <laughs> I, I can totally see him uh, losing his mind from that. Do you, th- do you think there's more to him than that? More to his weakness and susceptibility? Well, he's definitely under so much economic pressure. You know, it's it's funny because 
the reason why these uh, institutions closed up is because of, of what was going on in the 1980s and the whole, you know, oh, let's get rid of all the institutions and put the people out on the street. You know, hey, well, that, that's a really great idea, right? And that same kind of economic uh, pressure is what is just forcing Gordon into this whole idea of, yeah, we'll do this job, we'll do it cheaper than anybody else, and we'll do it faster than anybody else because he's so desperate for money. And everybody else that's there seems to be very desperate for money as well. I mean, it's interesting that the Josh Lucas character, he, he like hits the, uh, the lottery with this, uh, <laughs> this institutional, uh, slot machine that is spitting out all of these dollars. And it's just like, and all of these other, you know, treasures and stuff. And it's just, it's like the institution kind of knows what these guys need and are handing out stuff or like playing with them. And yeah, money is definitely at the root of a lot of the problems for each of these guys in here. To go back to the psychiatric part of this, I believe one of the first things it says before a diagnosis in any of the DSMs, or at least the newer ones, is that this has to be a problem to the person's personal health or their ability to to work within a society you can see versions of these characters who were able to deal with this and any of these things sound horrible i don't want them but you know someone could have dealt with them but these are as the simon will tell us later these are the weak and i believe the wounded and because they can't find a way of accepting they're holding on to all that pain they then become vulnerable to the part that goes out and hurts you know i wonder what Gordon's past is, but if I had to simplify it a lot, it's just Gordon doesn't have the ability to live this horrible, stressful life. My daughter had an ear infection, and I I yelled things at my wife at one point that I would never have yelled otherwise, and I don't think she was terribly happy at me, and that's a perfectly normal thing for having a kid. Gordon can't get past that, and that's what makes him vulnerable. I thought I was a pretty nice guy until I had kids and started losing sleep. And what that did to, you know, I just, I saw parts of my personality. I <laughs> had no idea were there before. I uh, wasn't violent, but, uh, you know, certainly uh, saw my temper would flare a lot. And, and I, I was, I was pretty, pretty harried. And, and yeah, I mean, I, I even had uh, people tell me, you know, years later, Hey man, Good to have you back for a couple of years there. You were, mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you were so fried. Uh, you, you feel you look like you've come back now. Yeah, I mean, just the whole sleep deprivation thing. Just is people just cannot understand how little sleep you get with a newborn around or even into like the first year. And it just takes so long for that to just chill the heck out. And when you are expected to lead that normal life and you're running on, you know, two hours worth of sleep or less a night. Yeah. Good luck with that. It's not an easy or normal thing to do. I would disagree though. I think it is quote unquote normal because so many people are doing it. And the question you know, that often comes up is what makes it so people go through life miserable and suffering and then the, but they go through it. And what makes them into people we see on the news, the Gordons and the other sort of tabloid people? And do we ever get to answer that? I think part of it's that he's I mean, he's in his what 40s at this point and he's just now having having kids. I mean, I would argue it's a good thing I didn't have kids in my 40s. You know, I was in my 20s and and only barely strong enough to 
to carry it off. I don't think I could have done it uh, done it today. We had our first, and I was thirty nine. Wow, wow. <laughs> wow. Everyone lives. She's two now. We're all alive. But I, mean, I think the thing, you know, other than you know a whole lot of other stuff, I think one of the main things is that there were always ways that I was getting out, like podcasting or. Or writing, I had some other world that I could go to even for a little bit of time. With Gordon, it seems like he's working or he's at home, and that's it. I have to say this movie does a good job of redeeming some actors who I don't normally like to watch. And this movie has three people in it, at least, that in other situations I just am not a fan of their work. David Caruso, his role of Horatio Kane in CSI Miami was completely insufferable for me. The whole idea of him never looking at the person that he was talking to until he took a break and then would look at them. And then when he would talk, he wouldn't look at the, it just drove me fucking nuts. Josh Lucas. I've not really seen him in anything where I was just like, wow, that Josh Lucas, he sure is a great actor. This guy is terrific. It's like, he's just been in a lot of crappy movies that I can think of like stealth and those kind of things. And it's like, all right, this guy doesn't do a whole lot for me. And then, Brendan Sexton III, I hated him so much from Welcome to the Dollhouse and Boys Don't Cry that it really took a lot for me to just accept that he's a great actor and he just plays a shit better than so many other people because he was just horrible in those movies as as a character. But in this movie, I really got behind all three of these guys. I really enjoyed all three of these actors. David Caruso was the only one I knew when I first saw it. But, you know, I frankly, I kind of liked him. I, I really liked him in Bad Dog and Glory. And I liked him in Kiss of Death, both of those written by uh, Richard Price, which maybe is why he was, you know, I liked him. But, uh, you know, I, I like Jade and Hudson Hawk and First Blood and King of New York, too. So um, I, I liked him in those. But, yeah, he seemed different in this. I've never seen CSI, so uh, I... I'm assuming, uh, and I've never seen NYPD Blue either, so I, I didn't have those those roles uh, to compare to. But uh, but I thought he was pretty good in this. But this movie made me an instant instant Peter Mullen fan. I just remember thinking, oh, was that the guy in Train Spotting? And but holy cow, is he good? Uh, he just he does so much with uh, nonverbal acting. You know, when he's he just the the contortions his face goes through in uh, in many silent moments are pretty pretty impressive, and he he really I think carries this film on his on his shoulders. So he's fantastic. He has showed up on the TV show Ozark. We only saw the first season, but when he showed up, I honestly looked at my wife and said, "Okay, this is going to be good." Yeah, Top of the Lake. He was fantastic in Top of the Lake too. If you haven't seen that, the Jane Campion show. If you ever another one is. Uh... My name is Joe, where he plays an alcoholic. And that's, there's a point of sad where it goes beyond you're crying politely to you're crying a lot and you just want it to stop. And he just wrings it all out of you. We talked about him when we covered uh, Children of Men. I mean, I think he's in that movie for maybe 10 minutes tops, but he is fantastic. And he is so memorable in the way that he talks about himself in the third person. And he's just, he's got that mellifluous voice that just, 
takes you in. And in this movie, it's the same thing. That voice just really brings you in. And just, it's like, I want to have beers with this guy. Even, even as Gordon, even when he's a, a crazy lunatic mm. at home, he just seems like somebody that you want to be friends with. And is there anyone else as likable in this cast? And I would say on purpose, you know, this is kind of a horror movie, Glengarry Glenn Ross to be a little bit of an exaggeration. And I think the rest of the cast, there's a few that you kind of like, but there's nobody else I would pick to have that beer with. I've got a, a, a theory about uh, the characters and their hair, how their hair defines their characters. And I think Jeff is easy to point out. He's got the mullet and he's kind of the goofball. Uh, and Hank has got this, you know, he's kind of sleazy and he's the mustache. Uh, Mike, who seems to know everything, you know, he's got this full head of hair but it's starting to gray and he's a little past his little past his prime and starting to realize, Oh, maybe I should have done something else with my life. Phil, the redhead is, is our biggest red herring and Gordon is balding and he's starting to lose it. And I think those, uh, I don't know if that was intentional in the casting, but it seemed to stand out to me tonight. Yeah, Phil is a great red herring, but Mike is also a great red herring. The whole, the, well, him finding the tapes, finding the session tapes, and that being kind of like the gift that the asylum gives to him. And then when he slips and calls one of the guys princess, and it's just like, oh man, this guy, he's got something going on. And then it doesn't really come back, but it's just, it's there enough where you're like, oh yeah, there's something going on with Mike. And then, yeah, we kind of switch and it's like, no, no, there's something definitely going on with Phil. Well, heck, there might be stuff going on with Phil and Mike. And so it's nice that we just never know what's going on in this movie it really keeps you on your toes and even when it comes to the twist at the end whether you figure it out earlier or not it's still one of those movies like i was saying earlier that i can watch this repeatedly and even if i know what's coming it's still such a pleasant experience well pleasant is is kind of a, a weird word to use but it's such an engaging experience that i'm with it every single time that i watch it this film's better when you know how it ends because then instead of looking for the plot to resolve itself, and I think a lot of the plot is some of the weakest points, you start watching for how the characters are developing emotionally, and that's where the scarier stuff is. There are times when Phil is a figment of Gordon's imagination, you know, especially right towards the end of the movie, and then I wonder how often that might be happening and we don't really know it, and it feels like there's a parallel between the story of Mary Hobbs and her many personalities and maybe Gordon and some of these guys, like how often are these people really there and how often are they just projections of a splinter of Gordon? You know, so it's, it's nice that we're playing with a uh, idea of multiple personalities and then this whole idea of perception. And we don't necessarily know if what we're seeing is real or who we're seeing is real. If you look at the haunted world of mental illness here, it's really normal for our brains to keep stuff away that we don't want to think about. Like in, An easy example would be, I think most people who have some sort of a substance problem find a lot of ways that they don't, and they keep building up that story until one day they really have to look at it. Or if you're dating somebody who is kind of a piece of shit, and you just you know it, but you find ways of keeping it all away, Gordon is probably known a lot of these things for a while he's found ways to say no it's okay they were just cooking pasta when i left and no everything's fine i've got this picture of my baby and then 
once he starts running to more and more evidence of what's really happened, he has to deal with how far gone he has. He's, in a sense, he's possessed himself. The use of audio is really fascinating in this as well. I mean, the whole idea of these tapes that we have where we get the story of Mary Hobbs, we've got that going on. But then also the use of the music, this kind of low electronic humming type of music that is going on through so much of this. I mean, the score is is really riveting. And then also something that I didn't pick up until the last time I, I watched the movie was the use of the whippoorwill, the, the bird noise, which seems to signal when Gordon is having a little bit of a break with reality. I don't know if that's a one-to-one relationship, like if every time that happens, if we're going to hear that whippoorwill or not, but it's a noise that I noticed more than one time, and it seemed to always come with one of those moments. So just the use of the nature sounds, and there's even a nice moment where we hear, I can't remember when it is, but we hear crickets going on. And it's a and it's daytime, broad daylight, daytime, yeah. And we have these night crickets that are playing, and so it's just that juxtaposition puts you on edge because you're like, this isn't right. And the first few times I watched it, I couldn't put my finger on it, and it really took a lot for me to realize, oh, there's crickets happening right now. Yeah, the sound is amazing. It starts, I mean, the very first shot, you know, it's still a black screen, I think, and you get this sort of sharp screech. Um, whether it was a, a stringed instrument or a, an electronic noise, I'm not really sure. But the, there's several of these little, just these little things that put you on edge really well. And I, I mean, I, I do think the the soundtrack was amazing, but I can't think of a single like hummable tune in it. It's it's just it's like sounds more than than tunes or or, or themes. I think you're onto it with the uh, the birds. That sounds right. Well, and then also that the phone plays such an important role and that when, you know, there are some female characters that we don't really ever see, like Mary Hobbs, we just get her through tapes. And then with, is it Amy, uh, that we get the phone calls with her and then so much of the flashbacks for Gordon, so much of it is an audio flashback that we don't, you know, we might get the little like snatches of what he saw, but it usually is beforehand, and then it's left up to our imagination what that audio goes with visually. I won't say half the story is being told via audio, but so much of this story, more than a normal, quote-unquote, horror story, is that we have these moments where you have to imagine or you have to, you know, you have to imagine what those sessions with Mary Hobbs were like. And it's nice that you never see that stuff and we might get an an image of mary but you know how did her face look when it was simon talking how did it look like when this character this personality was talking so it's really pushes you and and makes you more culpable when it comes to this story i think it's so so great that we never see her talk that we don't get any flashback scenes of her in the sessions and all we get is the doctor you know, as she's starting to have uh, become distressed, the doctor speaking into the tape and saying she's putting her fingers in her mouth, she's rubbing her eyes. She's it's like it, yeah, it makes makes your skin crawl. And, and you know, in a way that a flashback scene or or something like that uh, probably wouldn't, um, just because you see that so much in in other horror movies. This part of the movie was what killed it for me the first time because I knew about the satanic panic and daycares getting shut down and rumors of all these awful things that were happening with dead babies and cults that 
relate to the story told earlier, but also kind of infiltrate this woman murdering people. I thought this was going to be uh, a moment that would be paid off later in a, a literal way, especially since the cover of it and the first image you see is of this ghostly chair sitting in this abandoned hospital, and that made me think of the changeling. The second yeah. time, the second time through watching, I realized there wasn't an answer. It was about this moment that happens to all these people that no one can figure out. And so instead of looking for the the twist that I would figure out and show how smart I was, like you know something like the end of Memento or the end of of Seven, it was about we all see the ending, but no one can really stop someone else from getting there. That we are doing so much of this stuff in flashbacks, be they audio or visual, it's like the timeline is fractured and there's nothing that we can do to stop this. Like this is where we are always going to end up. And it's, it's this nice finality to it that also this whole spirit of Simon that we have alluded to earlier, this possibly malevolent force still out there, still doing his job, still preying on the weak and the wounded. And again, we know that there's going to be somebody else who's just as weak and just as wounded as Gordon, because that's how people are. But you have to let him in. Yeah, I like that his name is Simon, too. And he's, they kill when Simon says, when he, you know, he says, do it. And they do. But then he always says, they uh, let me in. They always do. Uh, they're looking for someone to come in and and uh, and direct them to do what they really want to do. You know, they they want to. They have to wait till he says, but they also have to invite him in. And how many killers that you can see on every channel and every movie say that it was this other part of themselves, or they didn't even realize what they were doing? Session nine really fits into that in terms of saying that. Sometimes people, they get to a point and they open that door. And then it's the thing that I think is the scariest about this movie is it says you're not that much different from anybody here. There's a reason why the five of us are working in this asylum. You know, we we belong here at the end of the day. Have either of you two ever worked a, a sort of a nasty industrial type job like this? I worked in a in a warehouse, but uh, didn't. Nothing, nothing too dangerous. Just a lot of dust and sweat, and it was cold in the winter. I've got city hands. My hands have been counting money all my life. I barely worked taking inventory for a machine shop. My dad had, and if I can count a couple of weeks of my life spent working in the corn in Iowa, but it, it reminds me that some of those jobs where there's physicality, there's people left unsupervised and angry. Uh, there's a chance where you can kind of like Mike wander off and, and do your own thing and there's a chance that you might just start needling each other because there's nothing else to do to be human and i thought that was a big part of this film too definitely the needling and it seems to take place when they're not working which seems like an awful lot of the screen time for guys who are supposed to be in such a hurry yeah you never know those those two guys out in the parking lot they're going to be coming in and taking over and larry fessing in any moment now they'll they'll just swoop in I guess it was it was kind of a red herring with those guys. Are, are they supposed to, in the end, be uh, graffiti folks? Is that is that what what it was? I guess that's what it was supposed to be. Like there, so there's that, and then on the Wikipedia page, what was it? There was there was one thing where they were saying like that there's a Phil speaking to two unknown men during one telephone call suspects that Phil had something to do with Hank's 
disappearance. I never got that, that Phil had anything to do with Hank's disappearance. So I was like, well, that's an odd one. So yeah, I guess I was thinking that it was the first time I watched this, that it was two guys that they were going to uh, hire to be part of this job that they didn't really know. And then that would cut into the profits. And then it ends up that they're graffiti artists that they're like, Hey, get away from here or something. So yeah, they're definitely another pair of red herrings that are coming around. I guess uh, I hadn't thought about the, them being involved possibly with, uh, with Hank's disappearance, but, but there, when Hank's scene where he's, he's back in there at night and he hears a noise and then he sees that creepy, he sees that figure, that human figure on one end and he starts running the other way. And then he runs into somebody else coming the other way. So, uh, you know, I always thought it must've been Gordon running around coming up in front of him. But if that was designed to be a red herring, like, Hey, it was two people uh, involved in, in getting him or something that I can see that. It's interesting. There are moments in here where the whole phone call with Amy and I'm like, well, did that really happen? Did that not happen? And there are times where I'm just like, well, that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Uh, if I think too hard about it or, you know, I have to do too many mental gymnastics to come to the same place where the movie is. I'm just okay, like accepting that there are some supernatural things going on here rather than, oh no, it was Gordon. He snapped and he's doing all the murders. Yeah, no, I'm okay with there being like the idea of Simon being a malevolent force. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm fine with that. It's, it's okay with me if that was some sort of a ghostly figure at the end of the hallway and not Gordon or not these two guys. Like, I don't necessarily need the explanation for all this stuff. I know some people do and some people get really bent out of shape if they can't put together every single thing. And there's one thing that's really kind of nice about this movie is that there's this whole other plot going on to it. And then they ended up chopping that subplot out at the end. And that also adds some loose ends to this where you again, have to do a little bit of mental gymnastics to re-explain things in this new context of that missing scene. So like there's a moment where you hear footsteps and it's like, well, if we saw that there was a homeless lady living in this place, then we would know it was her footsteps. But since she's not there any longer, maybe it's Hank's footsteps instead, or maybe it's a spirit or something. So it's kind of nice that that actually by, by detracting a subplot from this, it actually adds to the mystery of the story. I feel that cruising in the way it dealt with its killer, it different actors, different voices, making it impossible to picture an exact person you can't identify with them. This movie doesn't add up. It's got a lot of little mysteries in it. It seems like it should, but it deliberately doesn't, I think, so... You can't picture, oh, okay, if this happens to us, then we have mental problems. It leaves you more confused. I'll also say, I think the middle portion of this film is a little flabby, and the tone gets a little too light in places, and I, I wish it would have been trimmed. I actually wrote about cruising years ago, and I don't know if my writing was any good or not, but I, I was positing it as a horror film, and that the whole idea of the use of the different actors was more like a, again, a malevolent spirit going through all of these different men and you not knowing is the spirit infecting this person? Is it in this person? Is it in that person? And then at the end of the movie, the way that Al Pacino is, it's like, well, does he now have 
the killer inside of him. It was almost more like a like a Jack the Ripper for homosexual men moving from one person to the next. But like I said, it, it I mean, it could have been absolute garbage. But, you know, you can pick that up in the old Fangoria magazine, uh, issue number 332. So um, go right ahead. I'll, I'll, I'll let you guys do that. Well, yeah, Friedkin did that in uh, To Live and Die in L.A., too. He, uh, that first shot of uh, when, uh, you know, uh, Willem Dafoe's got that whole sort of androgynous thing going on. And uh, when he goes to the dance performance, there's that tracking shot of that male dancer who walks up and starts making out with uh, with Willem Dafoe. And then the camera pans around and there's a little cut and it's, oh, it's his girlfriend. But, you know, he, it was very clearly a man, you know, he's taller than Willem Dafoe in the, the first shot and then the reverse, you know, he's a little taller than she is and all that. But uh barely remember that. I mostly remember the whole your taste is in your ass line. I remember everything about that movie. It's a great movie. It's a really great movie. Somebody referred to it recently as, as minor Friedkin. And what? I just about no. lost my head. Mm-mm, no. Mm-mm. No. Yeah, I agree. There, there are some moments where it could be tightened up, and there is some levity to it that maybe is a little bit out of place. But at the same time, I think the levity helps make the scares, you know, as as jokey as we get, the scares then seem a little bit heavier when they start to come. But, you know, I, I can see your point, Axel, definitely. I believe I've read reviews that say that the, the Danvers Hospital, which they filmed in the actual mental hospital, was an important character or perhaps the most important character in the film. I would also argue that it's got a great supporting cast of just machinery and items from sort of an industrial factory life that are as scary as, as any monster that's designed by a special effects lab. The suits they have to wear hanging in that one hallway that goes completely dark. They have what looks like a death Zamboni that pulls up the tiles and that alone as someone who really never got the ability to do manly things well i just pictured my father trying to explain that to me and me crying and trying to bring up those tiles on that horrible machine and it comes back to friedkin and all the the machinery at the beginning of the exorcist that you know this sort of horror of this uh all these noisy machines running and, and in a movie where, you know, it's a, it's an evil spirit. That's supposed to be the scariest thing that he opens with the, all the machines clanking around is uh, to, to kind of put you off and, and make you un, uneasy. That works too. Yeah. I think the spinal tap in that movie is one of the most uh, terrifying things. It's kind of like the little tool that they have for giving lobotomies in this movie. It's like, it's such a simple thing, but it, is used so effectively and is just so scary, especially the whole idea of it going into your eye. It's like, oh, that just really creeps me out every single time I think about it. That was a I good just, bit. Yeah. Yeah. And the, when they're pulling it out of Josh Lucas and his head is, is coming up off the floor, <laughs> just a horrifying, horrifying shot. It's, it's amazing. And then in, in a sort of more subtle and almost supernatural moment, there's the scene where, I can't remember if it was Mike or Gordon, is out looking at all of the graves of people who have you know died here and been unclaimed. And there's a lot of them. That's kind of an homage to the fact that this is a place where human beings were put to die so they didn't bother their mentally healthier relatives. And no one's talking about them. They're just this, this army of the dead there. 
it's almost like the the Hamlet speech where he sees all the soldiers going off to die. And I thought that was kind of a nice little, almost an elegy for the real people who did live and die at that place because no one knew what to do with them. Yeah, I like, too, that uh, Mary Hobbs tombstone that uh, he's sitting next to making that call, Gordon is, is cracked and broken, and it looks like a broken asbestos tile, you know, it just, it's almost like it broke off and, you know, part of some little flake of it nestled inside him and, and incubated and, uh, you know, the way they talk about the asbestos getting inside you and, and killing you. Getting back to the patients at the asylum, I love the when they're going through the books reading the reasons people were uh, were committed or mortified pride, disappointed expectations, uncontrolled passion. Those are fantastic. I don't I, I don't know. Does anybody get committed for those? Uh, are those those things actually uh, listed? Or we have new terms for them? Or uh... no? Now I think you get elected for some of those things. It's not as much institutionalization anymore, like they, they mentioned in the movie. So, I mean, I think if you're going to get you know institutionalized, it might be more like a, a group home or something like that, or, or some sort of like day treatment that you would go to, but not quite like this, where this was still from the model. I mean, I, I think there were points where you would have like a ship of fools where you would put the mentally ill onto a ship and just send them out to sea and something might happen to them. Or you'd always find somewhere outside of town to go bring these people that that might have been behaving differently or, or you couldn't control. And the thing with these institutions is that they control everybody. But if you have to cut your budget somewhere or if there's something that you just want to ignore, no one wants to deal with it. So I've read reports of something like in some of these places, you'd have four inmates to one bar of soap, and each inmate had, like, one pair of underwear, and you kind of were naked when they were washing it. And you might see a doctor eventually, but by the time they got around to you, it had been a while. And so there's rampant abuse. And actually, one of the people that ends this is Geraldo Rivera, who sneaks in with a camera crew to an institution and films just the misery there. And so all of a sudden people who were able to pretend nothing was happening had to deal with it because it was on the TV and that, and the fact that these things are damn expensive, they let everybody out or almost everybody out. And some of them went home and lived lives and were accepted. And some of them went into group homes or, or smaller residences or something where they could, could still have a closer to normal life. And a lot of them just were homeless and died and were abandoned and forgotten again. Well, it's weird because we've had so many asylum exposés over the years, you know, like uh, Nellie Bly way back in, you know, 1887, writing about the snake pits and these kind of things. And just, you know, it's like, it's this cyclical thing of we put people in these institutions and we just kind of forget about it. And then, you know, every, I don't know, however many years people will start to talk about like, Oh yeah, this is a really horrible thing. You know, I can think of just off the top of my head, just a handful of movies without even really stretching and think about the snake pit and shock corridor and just seeing the, you know, um, one flew over the cuckoo's nest, seeing the madness inside of these uh, uh, places and just the way that people abuse power. 
And yeah, it's just, uh, you know, it, even, even all the way up to that horrible sucker punch movie from a few years ago, it's like we, you know, unless you are a fantastic dancer, you know, you just get punished in these places. I would recommend as a counterpoint to all of this, a documentary called West 47th Street, which is about a sort of a group home in, I think it's New York City, and it follows like four or five men who are there. And some of them, like one of the men, is just too disruptive. So even though he needs some support, they have to ask him to leave and, and be homeless again because he's threatening too many other people. Um, another person has some serious mental health problems. A lot of them, no one's coming to visit them. You see the workers there trying their best to help everybody out but not having a lot of funding. And it's it's a documentary, and I think it it gives you a good idea of what – you know, what that might look like. Yeah, I've got several relatives. My grandmother and my mother have worked in mental health over the years. And just, uh, you know, th- things have changed just over the however many decades between the two of them that they worked in that. But both of them worked in those fields as they were decommissioning and getting rid of the whole, uh, you know, asylum idea. So I have seen both size of that coin and just knowing like, oh yeah, this whole disenfranchisement and casting people out and thinking, okay, yeah, it's the family's responsibility, but then some people just end up homeless and mentally ill. It's just like, wow, this is, uh, this is not good at all. We suddenly were into clean shaven territory with Peter Green and I would be remiss to not mention Titicut Follies as well, as far as being a fantastic documentary about, uh, what, life inside of a a mental ward back in 1967 was like if i had to kind of make a an assumption about right now i think the people you're seeing would look more like jeff's character except mullets aren't cool now and yes mullets were cool i don't care what anyone says but you're seeing kids now who who are maybe aggressive and angry and don't know how to control it and the debate is you know how much do we keep working with them and how much we try to get them away does anybody know if uh, funding came through uh, product placement for Doritos, Oreos, and Jif? I would imagine it had to. They must have paid a little bit of money towards the budget. I, I just love that he's always running off to the Doritos and Oreos, and you know when he when, the, the my favorite, absolute favorite shot of the movie, of course, is him running down the corridor with the lights, you know, the darkness just swallowing him up. Then when he when he runs out, you know, he runs straight to the truck and he starts munching on Oreos as a as a comfort thing and i was like oh that's a that's a commercial right there all right so let's go ahead and take a break and we're going to play a pair of interviews the first is with the director and co-writer brad anderson and the second is with the co-writer and actor stephen gavadon and we'll be back with both of those right after these brief messages hey do you like movies of course you do you're listening to mike white's phenomenal podcast the projection booth I'm here, however, to tell you about another movie-loving podcast, The Shameless Picture Show. My name is Michael Byers, and the show was created by myself and my good buddy and filmmaking Nick Richards. In 2016, is a way for him and I to stay connected and to keep movies in our lives. Premise is simple. Each of us composed a list of shame filled with movies we've either missed, had no interest in, or just feel the other one should have seen. We've covered a wide range of films, from Heathers, The Godfather, The Exorcist, You're the Hunter from the Future... 
Phantom Tollbooth, a slew of amazing Vinegar Syndrome titles, and some that are not so good, plus our massive Rocky episode that features a new interview with Lloyd Kaufman himself talking about his friendship with John G. Abelson. And I personally can't wait for you to hear us and join the fight to keep film culture alive. You can find our show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and of course, SoundCloud. I'm Dave Hunt, and I'm one of the co-hosts for Super True Stories, a podcast where two guys suffer through and report back on some of the worst documentaries you can stream for free. And I'm Axel Kohag, and the other co-host. Film is a beautiful lie that teaches us about who we are on the inside. Dave and I look at the documentaries that are the ugliest of truths, teaching you about mixed martial arts and fishing, poorly faked ghost stories, and everything you wanted to know about poor production values and stock footage. Check us out on iTunes, Google Play, or at supertruestories.com. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap, either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superman episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. Well, I'm very curious. How did you get interested in being a filmmaker? How did you get your start? I would go all the way back to when I was a young, uh, well, when I was quite young. And my dad, uh, a lot of people probably have the same story, but my dad had a Super 8 movie camera. And I used to take home movies, right? So I would poach that thing on occasion. And, you know, when he wasn't using it, me and my friends would go out in the front lawn. We'd make little goofy movies with our G.I. Joes or whatever, you know, we started um you know just just the whole idea of creating something you know uh little stories um little vignettes uh that's kind of maybe the first inkling of uh of my interest in in that and of course you know growing up my dad was really into movies he used to go to movies all the time every weekend you know actual movie theaters back then <laughs> that was the only way to see films and, you know, just kind of got, I didn't, there's no, I don't know if there's any definitive moment. Uh, it was just kind of a gradual sense that this would, this could be really fun to, uh, tell stories this way. And, um, 
I uh, graduated from uh, college uh, with a degree in visual anthropology and ethnographic film. I wanted to, I was interested in sort of doing films about different cultures, different different traveling places, like sort of the stuff you might see on National Geographic, for instance, and kind of got into that uh, for a bit. And then um, I realized I needed to learn about the craft of actually making films, the art of the, the technical side of things as well. So I went to a film program after college um, in London, London Film School, and learned about, you know, loading the camera, putting up a light, uh, how to edit, um, to, you know, sort of the basics of directing and such, you know, got more excited. And um, that program was a, a two-year program, but I opted out after the first year because I figured, well, I could use my tuition for year two and actually go back to the States and make my own film. This was in the you know late 80s, early 90s when indie film was just becoming very trendy the whole notion of making movies with credit cards there was this book at the time i think it was called how to make feature films that used car prices it was called i remember the idea was you know just cobble together uh you know 20 grand or something or whatever it was and get 16 millimeter short ends from your local lab and hire someone who knew how to point a camera and get your friends to be the actors in it and write a little script and make a little indie guerrilla style movie. Essentially, that's what I did. I came back from London and used some money that I had that I was going to use for that and cobbled together some other rudimentary financing, if you will. Wrote a little script and made a really kind of like personal dogma style, <laughs> really low budget guerrilla style movie called The Darien Gap. I I used uh, a number of my dad's old Super 8 home movies in it, actually. Oddly enough, it was sort of the, the touchstone. A lot of those movies that he shot of us as children of the family became kind of flashback sequences in the film, in the, in the story, in the narrative for the character remembering his childhood. And um, so it was kind of a cool way to cobble together <clears throat> the thing that got me into it in the first place tie that together with my own movie that I was shooting. And we shot this movie up in Boston and again for nothing. And it was again, as I said, it was my friends and people I knew who were in it. We used local music, local in the Boston film music scene at the time for the soundtrack. And, you know, it was kind of a very heartfelt little movie, but the movie got into Sundance to my surprise and to my delight. And, uh, that, you know, was the first festival I'd ever been to. And so I sort of like got, thrown into very quickly there that, after that festival. I mean, you know, I got to see people watching my film on a big screen. It was, it was an exciting experience for me. I didn't have any connections in the business whatsoever. So it allowed me to meet a few people there, agents, producers, such and such. And out of that experience, um, you know, I, uh, I, I, I met a Boston based producer, which is where I lived at the time, a Boston based, real estate magnet, actually. He wasn't a film producer per se, but he wanted to get into the movie business, had a lot of money, and uh, you know, kind of paid me and my friend to write a script, and he said if he liked it, he'd make it, pay, and finance it, and make it for us. You know, as a, as a, again, a kind of low budget, but bigger budget for me, anyhow, independent film. And that movie was Next Stop Wonderland that we wrote and shot again in Boston. That film uh, that he financed, we, we, we got into Sundance again. And um, this time, we, it was a little bit of a bigger movie for me. It was more polished. It was, you know, 
Hope Davis, Phil Hoffman had a great cast and we got um, uh, some recognition out of that. And Miramax Films bought the movie and it was kind of like, wow, this is, this can be a way to make a living. Like I can actually do this and make money doing it. And what do you know? Like they can combine a career with what I am passionate about. That I mean, after that, I think I, I I I had a deal with Miramax. You know, like as a lot of they kind of signed deals with a lot of young filmmakers at the time. You know, it was kind of hip, which didn't really ever go anywhere, frankly. But but it kind of made me feel like I was you know kind of had a little bit of a foothold in the industry and the business at that stage. I met a lot of other people, and so you know, I guess I started to fashion myself as an indie filmmaker. You know, that was when it, that was when indie film was kind of trendy and people wanted to see these smaller movies that were antidotes to the big Hollywood studio movies. And there was a lot of appetite for it. So I made a couple movies, you know, after that session nine being one of them, happy accidents, films that I wrote and directed, you know, my own projects, my own films. And, um, you know, they had various successes or, you know, moderate, modest success, at least critically and that kind of again kept it going for me i i started to do tv direction as well i started to start directing television um episodes and that kind of was my sort of sideline as i tried to get my movies financed and off the ground and then after that i not to go in the whole spiel but then i um got uh, the machinist was the film i did after that and um and you know just not to get into every the whole kit and caboodle but basically i would say that you know, at a certain point, I kind of realized that this is my career. This is what I do. I, I do my own films, my own way, whether I write them and uh, and direct them or whether I find a script, like in the case of The Machinist, which was the first script I, had, I hadn't written. I directed Scott Kosar, who, who had wrote the script, and plowed along. And I, you know, I think I've continued to make those kinds of movies, small, modestly budgeted films about the various stories or things or whatever that interests me, you know, um, in my career and the kinds of movies I've made, I've been very eclectic. I've done horror movies. I've done romantic comedies. I just, my last film was a period sort of spy drama set in Beirut. I, you know, my next movie looks like it might be a psychological drama. So, you know, and I've, I've sort of run the gamut of, uh, different genres. I like to do that. I like to, genre hop as they say not sort of be tied down to one particular type of story and hopefully we'll continue to do that you know i don't i don't i, I like that the, the freedom the creative sort of sense of uh, freedom that you have when you are you know you're doing a movie that uh, uh, you know where you can sort of call the shots and you're not working for a big studio where a lot of it's sort of preordained because it's a franchise or what have you not special effects driven movies. I, you know, I'm kind of more interested in, you know, movies that deal with flesh and blood characters and, and honest, interesting, provocative stories. Like that's the kind of stuff that interests me. So I keep doing it. I keep trying to do it. <laughs> that's the goal. When you were studying uh, ethnographic work, I'm curious, were there any, were there any films that really kind of inspired you as far as that stuff went? I studied anthropology in, college and ethnographic film was kind of a spinoff of that. And there were, you know, uh, there were like the Nanooks of the North, the classic Robert Flaherty movie that kind of set the stage for making films about different peoples and different cultures and, you know, introducing audiences to new worlds. 
but you know, I don't know if there were any specific filmmakers or films. It was more just the notion of tying in both my passion for for growing fat passion for filmmaking together with travel and and getting out there. And I've always had this sort of curiosity about just seeing different parts of the planet, you know, and um, and and traveling. And I, to me, like the idea of you know, I sort of had this dream. This vision of myself as a National Geographic, for instance, you know, a uh, filmmaker and going off and and going off to different places, far flung places and and kind of making a movie about this particular thing or this particular topic. And when I grew up, when I was growing up, like we all together as a family would watch like shows like Jack Stowe and Wild Kingdom. And that, that stuff really influenced me as a kid. So it was a little bit of a, a desire to seek out the exotic, you know. And I've done a little of that. I mean, my movie Trans-Siberian, I mean, that evolved out of, well, after college, I just threw in a backpack and traveled through Asia for six months and ended up taking the Trans-Siberian train from China back to Moscow and uh, across Siberia. And that experience, uh, you know, years later became kind of the seed for the script that, for Trans-Siberian, my movie that was set on that train. Um and so I kind of like that idea that you pull from experiences in your own life and tell stories, whether they're loosely adapted from them or inspired by them, whatever. Um, that was, that's always been something that's been of interest to me, sort of finding stories that, you know, unusual stories from different places. That's always been an interest to me. Well, one story that you did that seems very unusual to me, and I was hoping you could maybe tell me a little bit more about, was uh, Frankenstein's Planet of Monsters. <laughs> yeah. Well, you haven't seen it? <laughs> <laughs> Surprising, that one is, is a little tough to see. Yeah, no, well, that was, you know, this is when I was living in Boston. As I said, I was kind of like, uh, you know, I, this was the age of Richard Linkletter's slacker and clerks and and reality bites and the kind of notion of this generation of the Gen X generation, of which I guess I would am more or less part of, which was this generation of overprivileged kids who just didn't have, uh, had a lot of time in their hands and were really overeducated and weren't, didn't have shitty jobs and just felt they were highly creative and, and, uh, had to kind of find a way to, to express their creativity um, but not worried about the long-term prospects of their careers or anything like that. Like that's, that was essentially my life living in Boston after college, you know, it was just kind of like, you know, working at a liquor store or working as a, as a delivery guy, I did, as a projectionist, I did a bunch of odds. And then, and then, you know, but that was just life. That was just making enough to get by. And me and my friends are just like I did when I was even younger, would get together on the weekends. We make silly movies and, you know, and this time not with Super 8, but with, you know, videotape or whatever was, you know, you know, high eight video. And I had a camera and we'd make little goofy movies and little sort of sketches. You know, nowadays everyone does them on their iPhone or whatever and puts them up on YouTube. But this was all before that. So we made a bunch of these little goofy movies and one of them evolved into Frankenstein's Planet of Monsters. I have a friend who was just really into all those great bad Ed Wood movies and William Castle films from the fifties and sixties, like just kind of bad, good cinema, um, horror, horror, like the stuff that's so, so bad that it's good. So we just, he wrote a really silly, ridiculous, but funny story called Frankenstein's planet of the monsters. I don't know. It's like a Frank, the Frankenstein monster lived on a planet with, uh, 
with lots of monsters who uh, protected him. And then these two astro- three women astronauts come down and they have a confront him. <laughs> it, was a little, it was silly. It was shot with, uh, it was purposely meant to be, you know, one of those movies with cardboard sets and, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the ray guns were made out of like paper towel tubes that we were, we were purposely trying to make something as silly as we could make it. Um, but we shot on Super 8. It was actually my last thing I ever did on Super 8. When, when you could still do Super 8. This is back, you know, in the early 90s. You could still shoot Super 8 film. There was a place in Boston where you could get it processed. And, you know, I cut the thing. I cut it as a Super 8 film, like with the little winders. And um, ultimately got it transferred to video. And, um, but yeah, I mean, that was just a silly. Those were the fun things that just kept the creative juices flowing, you know. My interests... And the kinds of films I do, you know, kind of change over time, you know? I mean, like, I don't have any interest in comedy anymore. I mean, I don't have interest in doing any romantic comedy. But my first couple of movies were romantic comedies, sort of, because I was sort of the stage in my life where that kind of had value and meaning to me. Now I'm more interested in, you know, and then Session 9 was uh, because I was just wanting to do something darker, and I was tired. I just... I was getting, even though I'd just done a couple movies, there was this sense that this is the guy that does this kind of poignant romantic comedies, and I wasn't, wasn't interested in that. So Session 9 was just a way to break, to depart from that completely, do something completely not romantic and comedic. And, and that's uh, what I've done, maybe, to my fault, to a certain degree. I just don't like to be pigeonholed as the guy or a filmmaker who does one particular type of movie. And I don't mind going back and forth. It keeps me interested. You know, not like doing the same thing. What is your approach when it comes to directing actors? You've had some of the, I mean, some of the best actors that we have currently working out there in your films. I'm very curious how you came to your approach as far as working with them. I mean, I think it depends on the actor and it depends on the role and what their, what, what the specifics of it are. I mean, a lot of these people, like you know Christian Bale, for instance. I mean, I, you know, this is before he was the Christian Bale that he is today. That sort of had the advantage of working with people like Phil Hoffman or whatever as well. Before they kind of broke and became bigger names, um, you know, I I think I, early on, anyhow, I think I had an eye for like kind of actors who had that thing, but they just hadn't made that movie that put them totally on the map yet, you know, or made them, you know, the stars that they ultimately became. Um, but, you know, in terms of working with actors, um, you know, I mean, I, 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 I my, my, my rule is like, you cast a movie well, right. You get the right person for the role and it, you don't have, you, you often, you know, and they understand the role and they understand what you're after. And then, you know, makes your life as a director, that much easier, really more of an observer than a director. You're observing them do their magic in front of the lens, you know, and your job is to kind of make it capture it and, and, and give them the, the, the leeway and the space to, to re- deliver the performance that's going to you're after. Um, but I'm not a very, I wouldn't say I'm a hands-on actor director. I mean, I, I love working with good people and seeing what they can pull off, but I'm more, like get the right people for the part and let them play and let them deliver. And my job is to, to directorially put that in the context of a scene where to how you know, how to present their performance in a way that, that works for the story um, you know, visually and in terms of how we set up the scene and on the sound and so forth. But casting is so critical, you know, and if, you know, and then, you know, but, 
but you know, it's like anything. And I do a lot of television directing and, you know, you're working with actors that you don't, you didn't cast them and they're part of the episode, part of the series that you're directing an episode for or whatever. And, you know, you, uh, you, you know, you either, sometimes you find you need to, you want to go in there and give them more particular direction. And other times you just step back and let them do their thing, you know? Um, and, uh, which is always the preferred scenario in my mind. Like, you know, you, I don't like to feel like, you know, by the time you get the cameras rolling and you're, you're sitting there on set and it's lit and you're ready to go. Like by that point, you presume that most people kind of know what they're doing. You know, you're not going to like, you know, it's not like you're going to yell action and the actors are just going to do something completely bizarre and different than what you expected generally. <laughs> or maybe I just haven't worked with the actors who like to, you know, purposely kind of you know, throw a monkey wrench into the process. Thankfully. I mean, the people I've worked with are all, have all been great and I haven't had a real bad experience with an actor, to be honest, some TV people maybe, but like the films I've made it like I've cast them, you know, so they've been actors that I've met and wanted to do it. And they're also, since the movies aren't, they're not doing it for the money really. I mean, you know, they're doing, they're getting paid, but they're not, it's not like a big paycheck generally, if you're doing like a six or $12 million movie, you know, it's like a, it's you're doing it because of the love of the story or the or the the role or just the experience or you know it's it's not just uh, about the money so that generally those people want to they're going to be well behaved they're going to try to suck it up is so what's what would be the whereas I think like a studio movie sometimes it's like you know you really you know or, or or in some cases it really is just about clocking in collecting your paycheck and then doing whatever that they want you know but those aren't that doesn't interest like that kind of process doesn't interest me for sure. You talked about wanting to do something darker when it came to session nine. And I'm curious, what else was your inspiration for that? Well, that kind of came out of, uh, I had, as I said before, I had a deal with Miramax and there was a project that I was trying to get off the ground with them that I had written that, uh, was, a, no, it was a romantic comedy. And, and it was just like this laborious process of trying to get this movie off the ground. And it was just, it was just proving to taking longer than I wanted. It was just a pen. And it's just kind of like, I was sort of my introduction to the way that the actual movie business works, you know, because I, had, I hadn't really been in the movie business up to that point, working with a company like Miramax and politics that go along with it and all that. And so the process is taking so long and I was like, and it got delayed. And I'm like, well, I'm not just going to sit on waiting for this movie to materialize. I want to do something. I want to make a movie. So I'll just write something that... Um, that's, that's, that's contained that can be done quickly and fairly cheaply. And a, a friend of mine, Steve Jevedan, who's an actor, he, he was in the movie and I really love, you know, we just always were talking about great horror and, but, but smart, but smart, dark, you know, paranoid thriller type, really turgid type horror, not like the horror that seemed to be that, 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 that was kind of passing for horror, scary movies back, then, which was like kind of movies like Scream and I Know What You Did Last Summer, like kind of cheesy, like popcorn horror. We wanted to do something that was was dark and 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 uh, more European in a way, I guess, and sort of more akin to the scary movies that like the Kubrickian type horror or Polanski and stuff that really kind of got under your skin, psychological type. Or, and anyhow, we there was this mental hospital north of Boston uh, where I lived at the time, like 20, 20 minutes north, Danvers State Mental Hospital. It used to be called 
Danvers Lunatic Asylum. You know, it was built in the 1860s. It was this amazing complex, uh, old brick, you know, you know, buildings on this hilltop overlooking Danvers, Massachusetts, and you'd drive by it on your way north, and you'd see it just looming up there. It's a really cool visual stunningly visually interesting place and uh, you know and, and um it was abandoned it was shut down in the 80s when they shut down they deinstitutionalized all those places parts of it were still operating but most of it had shut down so steve and i were just, i was interested in that and i was like what if we just set a story at one location with a small group of actors so we don't have to, you know small cast small one location over the course of a few days so everything's very contained you know in all these location movies you're just in one place for the whole movie basically and what can we do? How could we tailor a story to that? And so the location was that we just realized that would be an amazing location because no one had ever shot anything there. And I heard that like that there might be abil- uh, the ability to get permission to shoot there. So we snuck in. We we hired. We hired. We we, we found these these kids online call themselves urban explorers or urban uh, spelunkers. They go into abandoned places like abandoned subway tunnels or abandoned hospitals or abandoned military installations or just anything sort of that's closed down and spooky. And they go into those places and they've made videos of themselves exploring these places with their flashlights and finding weird things on the walls and strange things. And, and they, they had this website. So we kind of contacted them because they had been to Danvers. We watched one of their videos of them exploring that place. And they took us up there. We went, we met them. And they took us through Danvers. We snuck in past the, you know, their security because it was, they didn't want kids doing that, like, you know, going there at night and getting themselves into trouble. But we snuck past the security guards and we went in one night and we had our flashlights and we snuck into the building and kind of broke into the building, which was, you know, not one building, but I said a complex of buildings connected by tunnels. And we explored. We spent the whole night just wandering around this place at night just with our flashlights, you know, it was really creepy, like going through the tunnels and finding the old rooms where the hospital the patients used to stay. They took us to the the place where they apparently had performed lobotomies back in the day, like an old operating chamber. There was like an attic full of boxes of patients' records just sitting there gathering dust. They had pictures of the patients on the records. There was like a, a giant kitchen that was just completely empty except for these big stoves. It was a really dramatic location and epic feeling, you know, and it was almost like you could never build a set like that, even on a big studio movie. So, so we essentially out of that, that little, uh, that little exploration, we, we got back and we just started writing a story that could take place in some of the locations we saw there. And we came up with the notion of, well, let's make it about these five guys who are uh, there to renovate the building for, um, you know, to, uh, to fix it up because they're going to make it into you know, municipal buildings and they have to take, they have to abate all the asbestos from it, which is what they ultimately, oddly enough, had to do at that actual location because they did turn it into um, condominiums finally. So we, so we, uh, so we just came up with that as our premise. And then it was just kind of like, you know, uh, coming up with a story. And there had been like a couple of years earlier in Boston, there had been this, Notorious uh, uh, murder where this this sort of guy who worked at um, at one of the big ins- uh, uh, John Hancock or something up there he uh, like a insurance salesman or something he uh, he had just woken up one morning and got in a fight with his young wife or something and he killed her cut her throat and uh, and and then cleaned himself up went to work you know 
came back. Body was still there in the kitchen. He just left it there, ordered some pizza or something. Went to work the next day, and over the course of a week, he just like he just completely lived his normal life, had having killed his wife and having left her body there in his house. Um, like he had disassociated what he had done from uh, from his real life, and ultimately he got caught. Like someone, someone noticed. Um, the fact that uh, his wife wasn't showing up at work or something. And uh, when he got caught, he was like, you know, they said, what, what were you thinking? How could you have done this? You know, you, how can you carry on with your normal life and routine knowing you had done this hideous thing? And he just said, like, you know, he didn't think about it. He just, you know, he just sort of put it out of his mind. And so the, the idea of that sort of became the kernel for the story in Session 9 about a man who commits this awful slays his entire family basically um, for, for, a, a, for a, for not a, for, for kind of like a, a just a, a, because of the stress of work and the stress of life. And just one day he cracks, he breaks, he snaps and he kills his family. But instead of, you know, kind of copying up to it or, or, or just realizing the horror of what he's done, he just goes about doing his, he sort of puts it out of his mind. He's, he sort of uh, buries the, the the memory of what he's done and goes about his everyday routine. This is the Gordon character in the movie. And, uh, and, but, but then, you know, the idea was that like the hospital itself was like a, was a place that was, would elicit, um, would sort of draw out the monster inside of you. If you had a monster inside of you, like it would, it would, it would uh, trigger the, the monstrous side of, of your instincts in a way. And that was sort of, our idea of the haunted hospital in a way it was haunted with ghosts. The whole place was kind of like, it was meant to be like the, 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 the hospital that they're working at was, was a place that would, 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 would lure the bad, dark, evil shadow side of you out of you, you know, if you were there too long or if you, if you kind of were, if you were susceptible to it. And yeah, so that we were, we were going for something in terms of the story that was, that was, that was, uh, is very, you know, kind of, uh, nuanced and layered and, and, and more tonal, you know, like just the, the creeping long zooms down dark corridors of that place at night or the, the weird sound design and the spooky kind of eerie emptiness at all. Like that's what was interesting most of all from my perspective. So we we created a story, we wove a story in and around that place and wanted, I just really wanted to create something that had more of a, that left you with a real sort of icky sort of, uh, you know, kind of feeling of, of, uh, of just, just of being very kind of lost in that place. And, um, and it wasn't hard to do because the place itself was so, was like that. I mean, the actors, when we were shooting there at the hospital, because we ended up at the hospital for 28 days or whatever, you know, they just like, it wasn't hard for them to get into the spirit of feeling haunted or feeling spooked by that place because it really was like that. Um, we, we shot in all the locations that we had written into the scripts, you know, like the, the tunnels and, and so on and so forth. So it was like, it was like, again, taking a real location instead of writing a script and then finding a location to fit what you've written. We wrote a script that was tailored for that specific location and about, and tailored for like a story that could, that could plausibly take place in a location like that. 
we wanted to avoid a movie about young kids. Like, you know, one thing would have been, you know, the, the sort of, the, the studio version would have been about a bunch of kids who break into a hospital at night as a lark and like one by one they get off. We want our story to be about real working class guys who uh, are just normal everyday, everyday guys. Some of them are friends, some of them aren't. They work on a crew and over the course of the few days that they're there, like things start to unravel. That to me was sort of interesting. I think The Thing, the movie The Thing, was a little bit of an inspiration for it. Shining, Kubrick's Shining, of course, in terms of just the idea that this place can, like, you know, you spend a time in a, in a dark, sinister place, and it can make you, it can, it can affect you, it can change you into something darker yourself. Like, that was what was driving... Uh, session nine, you know, um, and uh, yeah, so, and again, we used a lot of the things we found, like this whole idea of session tapes, that one of the characters finds all these uh, tapes from, they do sessions with the patients and, you know, therapy sessions and um, record them. And we found some of those actual tapes when we were looking at that play, looking at Danvers, you know, we, we wove that into our story. So one of the characters finds some audio tapes from some sessions um, and he starts to get sort of curious and pulled into this weird little story sort of that overlays our story about this girl who uh, was kind of a, uh, you know, a, a, a multiple person had multiple personality disorder. We just thought that was like really creepy. Like I remember that movie Sybil when I was growing up about the woman who had like all these different personalities <laughs> and I always thought that was really spooky. So, so that got layered into it as well. But yeah, that was, um, you know, we wanted to do something that, um, a movie that, uh, wasn't easy, um, that had layers that, that, um, that did have, that did leave you at the end, like, you know, with questions. Um, but I always like that. I think those kinds of movies are, um, most intriguing to me. It's like, you, you know, it's not like a neat little bow at the end, everything ties together. You, you might, you might need to watch it again to find some clues that are planted or to sort of fix get a little more insight into what's happening. Like those are the kind of movies like, you know, I don't know how many times I've seen the Shining, for instance, because I just find that movie. It's so layered in a way. And of course it's almost notorious for having, you know, multiple ways to interpret it. Um, and you know, you can make a movie like that, that has, that has like subtext upon subtext and still is really entertaining and scary. Like, I think that's like an accomplishment. Was there any issues with like insurance? I mean, if you guys are shooting in this potentially dangerous location, how was the movie company with that? Yeah, right. Yeah, it took us a while to get the the state owned the property, you know. And they they initially were like, "No way, we're not going to put a, allow a whole film crew to go in there and walk around." The place was parts of it were condemned, parts of the floors were co- collapsing. You know, there really was asbestos all over the place in that building in those buildings. So it was a little dangerous, uh, but, you know, ultimately we, we were working with a local production company and they were really interested in, you know, kind of supporting local film in a way. And, you know, we kind of finagled it. Um, we got, you know, we ultimately got them to agree. I mean, we, there were certain parts of the, of the complex that, that we weren't allowed to go because truly you would have fallen through the floor into the basement. Like that's how rotten some of those places were, but you know, we picked the areas that we could shoot at and, and we didn't even need to do much in the way of um, you know, production design. A lot of it was just already there. I mean, I think the only big one we did was uh, the room, uh, you know, that they discover that has all the, the, photo, the photograph montage on the walls, like that kind of weird room that looked you know, spooky like that we created. But that, but that kind of came out of like when we were, when we were, tra- when we were walking around the place and exploring, 
we looked into a bunch of those, we walked into a bunch of those patients' rooms, which are kind of like prison cells in a way. And they were all like, all the walls are always covered with scribbles or doodles, or there were pictures that they plastered onto the walls or illustrations. Like they were, you know, they tried to decorate their rooms, like make them kind of more personalized. So that kind of, that kind of came out of, again, the, the real, what the real place was. But yeah, it was, it was almost like we walked in and it was ready to shoot. Like it was just so perfectly designed the place for what we needed. We just had to be careful that we didn't like fall through rotten floors and such, you know. This was one of the first ones shot with the, uh, was it the Sony 24 FPS? Yeah, we were, uh, they were just starting, Sony was just start experimenting with this digital format. Uh, 24p they called it, which which had a film look to it. It shot 24 frames per second, even though it was digital. Um, and we and and they hadn't really shot anything. I mean, so they gave us they gave us Sony let us use the equipment. I think for like nothing because they wanted us they wanted filmmakers to start using their equipment and get and you know so they could talk about it and spread the word, and also just to see how it turned out. So we just lucked out like just as we were starting to prep the movie they were looking for filmmakers who would want to shoot on their these new cameras and because originally we were going to shoot it on film as you know we would um but then it was like oh this is this new format it looks like film but it's not film and you know we did some tests and it was kind of cool it was like yeah this looks great and it it gave us and it worked really well in low light conditions you know obviously we didn't have the budget to bring in a ton of big you know movie rigs and movie lights so because of that um uda brisowitz who was our director of photography was like this is the perfect you know camera for this movie because we can go into the dark tunnels and and we don't have to bring in a ton of light and can give it a certain kind of look and yeah so i think ours is one of the first uh, movies that ultimately got a theatrical very small but it did get a theatrical release we bumped it up to 35 millimeter and uh i think it was one of the first movies that that did that and then i think it was like the first star wars movie was the second one he said something you know to, to a much bigger effect yeah like i think it was uh that phantom menace or something that was the that also used those same cameras that same year i believe it's such a nice mix of the the five male leads just the uh the balance of those and such different personalities how were they, those guys to work together on on set they were all good, and you're right. They were all, they did all come from different places. Like David Caruso is like you know a, a TV star, and um, he was in. He was this is he was sort of you know this is before he, he um, before the um, CSI Miami was the one that um, he uh, did after the movie. But he was sort of in between places when he when he came on board. But he's a very he's you know, and then there's you know, and Peter Mullen is a great. Very, very, just amazing Scottish actor who I've seen in this movie. My name is Joe. She directed. He's a director as well, and he's just this beautiful. He makes these beautiful kind of like cinema verite kind of dramas, kind of Ken Loach type stories. And he's very, uh, just a really naturalistic, very, just totally no frilled kind of actor, but brilliant. And David is more like you know he was just starting to kind of make a name for himself and he was more like the you know the actor who really wants to uh, you know a little more methody and then you had brendan uh who was also a little more methody and steve was my friend he was in it 
So it was a it was an interesting mix of guys, you know, because uh, they all had different approaches, and that's that's one of the things you find as a director is part of what you need to do is find a way to, you know, kind of uh, be a bit of a of a moderator between the different acting different actors in terms of how they might approach a scene. So they're not working at odds with each other, you know, and that was a bit of a challenge, but I mean, they were all into it. And when we got there and they saw the location and they saw what we were trying to do, they were like, Oh, this is cool. This is like, like we can really get into it because this is for real. Like we're not on a stat. And so I think the collaboration was good. And, you know, there was, it was meant to be a kind of, you know, undercurrent of friction between them all. Anyhow, like it's just sort of guys or these blue collar working class guys who are doing this sort of dangerous job. And they're, you know, they're, it's not like they're just on a walk through the park and they're, you know, they're all kind of like a little bit, the tension is already there just by the nature of what they do. And they're, you know, and so we wanted to kind of milk that a little bit. And even, you know, particularly between the Gordon character, which is Peter Mullen and Phil, who was the character played by, but the Crusoe, like they were meant to kind of be friends who were kind of, there was some friction in their, in their friendship. So we're sort of trying to milk a little of that, but yeah, I love, uh, you know, uh, working with, um, you know, actors who, you know, have different approaches because it teaches you as a director, like in a way I had to, um, negotiate that. You know, some actors just are totally hands off. He does like, you don't have to tell Peter Mullen anything. Like he just does it and he's been did it perfectly. Whereas like, you know, say with Josh, you'll have a million questions like, you know, method sort of motivation, stuff like that. The Caruso is more about like, where's my mark? How do I, I mean, where I got to hit my mark more mechanical, you know, in terms of the questions he has. So everyone has different, different approaches and you got to kind of figure out a way to, to work that. How was it working with Steve on the film since he's both actor and co-writer with you? You know, Steve's a, like any actor, he's a, you know, like always vying to get a role in the movie, and um, you know, particularly if you're based in New York, there's so much competition. So we wrote scripts together, um, and we wrote a part for him, you know, um, specifically. So he kind of tailored it for him, which was and kind of his sensibilities a little bit. So you know, I didn't have to. We didn't. It wasn't really much in terms of direction because we he knew we both knew what we were after, you know, because we worked on the script together. And I mean, the experience overall, just, you know, like most of the films I've done, thankfully, so far, I've been, it was good. It was, even though the subject matter is dark and grim, you know, um, and the place is sort of daunting, the experience was fun. Um, We had a good, you know, we always, we made it enjoyable as much as possible. There were a couple incidents um, that happened while we were shooting that were scary, one in which, uh, Uta Brisowitz, the director of photography, almost almost blinded. We were doing a scene where she was chasing Josh Lucas's character through one of the dark subterranean tunnels as he's running away, and she was following him with the camera handheld on her shoulder, and so she couldn't really see where she was going. She had someone guiding her, but still, it was dark and precarious. And there was lots of weird equipment and medical gear on the sides of this hallway, and. Somehow Josh bumped into one and it was an old dental drill that had been rusting on the side of this corridor for years and it fell on top of her. And the, the drill bit, the, literally the drill bit that would go into, into that they would drill into your mouth, <laughs> like pierced 
the eye cup of her camera, which she was looking through, and went into her eye. Like it, it, it gave her essentially gave her a, a lobotomy, which was ironic given the story in the movie. The, the metal tip of this dental drill went into the, the small pit of her eye and and then popped out. And and she fell down to the ground. She was unconscious. Like the camera practically fell broke apart, but she saves it. And she came to, and she was stunned. And we were all terrified because we thought we had just blinded our director of photography because her eye was bleeding. And, like, you know, we saw what happened. We're like, this is crazy. It's the fucking place is, like, it's, like, trying to send us a message, like, get out or something, you know? That like, and, you know, we rushed her to the clinic, and we were all terrified as to what the diagnosis would be. And, and miraculously, like, the, the little metal dental drill probe had gone into her eye, but it had just gone into the side, you know, it had punctured the eyeball. So there was no damage in it. It, it kind of like bruised it, but it didn't puncture her anything. I mean, literally a millimeter to the left or right. And it, she would have been blinded. And the doctor's like, it is kind of a miracle. And she had a black eye. She had a black eye. It was the only damage. And she was the next day we were back and up and running. It was like crazy. And we were, it was one of those moments when everyone was just kind of like, this place is really fucking weird. The other one was with Peter Mullen. Like he would, he told me that we were doing a scene. He needed to, you know, he wanted to get into the spirit of the scene. He was supposed to kind of be haunted. He was supposed to sort of convey a sense of being haunted. So he just wandered alone through the corners of the place while we were setting up. And he went into one of the patient's rooms by himself and just sat there in this room, like just quietly sitting there and placed his ear up to the, up to the wall of the building. And he tell, he swears that like he heard voices talking to him through the walls of the buildings, like the voices of the former patients who had been in that place and, and, and kind of like just getting into his head. Like he said, he kind of like for a moment, he kind of went a little crazy. Like he kind of felt like this is what it would be like to be insane. Like he kind of lost his mind for just a little bit. And then when he came back to shoot, he like just totally delivered because he was in that space, man. He was, he was truly haunted. And he said that he stuck, it stuck with him for like a, a couple of days. He kind of like, it kind of f- fucked him up a little bit. Like, so the place definitely had a, a residue of, of just bad juju, you know, it's just like, there really are bodies of patients buried in, a, in plots around the buildings. Uh, you know, these were sort of like pauper's graveyards where they buried the patients who died, who didn't have any relatives and they didn't have any contacts, just buried them in these graveyards with numbers so they could identify the remains, but they didn't have, they didn't have names or anything like, you know, almost like, like an anonymous graveyard. So their bodies buried all around that place. Um, you know, and that, there's a scene we staged in kind of that one of those graveyards. And, um, yeah, so it's, uh, it, it, it's really creepy. And, you know, the irony is they've made it into, as I said before, they, eight years ago, they tore, they finally did tear most of the buildings down after they took out the asbestos and they saved the main more architecturally pro like, prized parts of the building and, and designed all these condominiums. And now the place is basically a condominium complex called Avalon. And they have a swimming pool and a gym and everything. It's very strange. I went up there recently. It's like, you know, it's just creepy. I don't think like most of the people who live there don't realize it used to be a mental hospital. 
Was the final product that we saw in theaters, was that pretty close to what you guys wrote? Um, no, we, yeah, I mean, pretty close. The only difference was we had, we had an ancillary B story about this homeless woman, former patient who was running around the building. And, um, you know, there's some scenes where they hear footsteps and see a footprint in the dust. And that was meant to be this sort of this um, escaped patient, if you will. Um, and uh, and I think it might be on the DVD. There was like deleted scenes, but like yes, yeah, so we had this whole B story that wove through it, and and this this uh, former patient was meant to think that she's the one who like killed the characters or may have done some mayhem. Um, but then we realized that she's really just not. She's innocent. That she witnesses Gordon's little slaughter at the end. So like it was this whole sort of uh, there was like she was she was like a witness essentially. Um, a misdirect. She was like a red herring character, but it just didn't. I mean, people, I mean, when we tested the movie, some people were confused about her role. And, and, and you know, even though I thought it was kind of cool. We ended up cutting that part, but pretty much like, yeah, it was kind of what it was in the end. I mean, the company that made the movie, USA Jones, like, you know, they, I think they were ultimately probably wanted a very, they wanted a, they wanted like, and I know what you did last summer. They were looking for like a, a more straightforward horror movie and we delivered something that was more kind of an art film in a way, or at least more, more oblique and, you know, not so on the nose and genre. And I think they kind of like didn't really know what to do with it. They were like, okay. Well, was the film ultimately successful? Uh, I don't think it made much money. Um, I mean, I think it's going on to become a bit of a cult movie in a way. And I've done a lot of, interviews about it in that regard and, and all that um, just because there, there was a lot of people after the movie came out who you know, kind of were interested in this place and suddenly there was this uptick and people trying to break into the, the mental hospital because they wanted to sort of go to the place that was shot and there's you know take pictures of some of the sets that we shot at or designed and being a, a, a horror movie that you know, that, a unique sort of horror movie, I think it, 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 it delivered, you know, in terms of being a box office success. No, I don't think so. They didn't put any money behind marketing. it. They didn't know how to market the movie. I don't think they didn't have a sense of it as to what it was. I wanted to ask you, what was it like directing the scenes with the doctor and Mary? Well, we, you know, that was fun. Cause we, we had them in a, you know, it was all audio of course, but, uh, we got, you know, these, it was about, it was about casting a voice, right? Finding the voice of a, of a sort of that classic kind of deep stentorian doctor voice. And then we had Mary who was meant to be a multiple personality patient. So she had to play these three different voices and each one was sort of different, you know, like the, the child and then the demonic kind of character and then sort of something more normal. And, uh, and we found an actress who just, was like that. She was like a chameleon. So she kind of created all these voices and we did some like, you know, audio manipulation of the voices as well, just to make them even creepier and weirder sounding. But I've always been interested in like that, the idea of like telling a story as much through the use of sound than through the use of visuals. You know, that was the whole session tape idea in the movie was there's this kind of layered story on top of our story, but it's all told through the use of sound and not vision, not pictures. So it was important to find actors who could deliver performance that was vivid, even though you don't see them, obviously. You talked earlier about how you've done a lot of different TV shows, and obviously you've done a, a ton of movies after Session 9. I am curious, though, because I'm kind of a nerd. How was it working on Fringe? 
Yeah, Friends was great. That was a fun show to do. I think I did episodes in all the different seasons. Started in New York and then they ultimately moved the show to Vancouver. But it was fun. It was uh, the fun thing about that show is like, you know, sort of like an X-Files type thing. Every episode was, you didn't know what you were going to get. You know, it might be a monster living in a you know, dragon-like monster living in a, in a, in a, in a sub, in a, in a tunnel. Or it might be a creature that transforms on an airplane. It might be, you know, like a guy who can levitate and all the different fringe science ideas would come into play. And that's what was so fun because you'd get the script and you didn't know, okay, what's it going to be this time? And every episode was from the director's perspective, it was sort of like you had to a challenge. Like it wasn't like a typical cop show where, you know, you're just sort of following, you know, the, the crime of the week and, most of it takes place in an interview room or the bullpen or whatever. This one was dealt with obviously all the paranormal and freaky fringe type science stories. And it was fun. And the actors were great. I mean, just a great cast who, you know, ultimately were really became like a bit of a family and, you know, they really kind of had good writers on it. Um, I, I love, I, I had a great time working on that show. I thought it was really a good show too. You've shot a movie here in Detroit. I was curious, what was your experience like with uh, Vanishing on 7th Street? I actually had never done anything in Detroit. I'd never been to Detroit before doing a movie, and um, we looked at a number of places to shoot the film. We needed a kind of place that we could control large sections of downtown at night, you know, and make it look a little post-apocalyptic. So we looked at different places like Toronto and you know Pittsburgh and such, but Detroit, you know, this was a few years back, but probably not as much so anymore but like you know you could own the entire downtown blocks of detroit like after 10 p.m for the rest of the night with no cars and you know you, you could control it and get a lot of uh production value for not a big budget for that kind of a movie so you know it, it turned out to be the perfect fit for this film and uh and i enjoyed it i loved i i liked the history of that place i, I kind of am drawn to abandoned kind of ramshackle <laughs> places a little bit. I'll ask you nine. Um, I find them fascinating the places that have this rich history, but are now kind of dormant. So we, you know, all the old factories over there, the, the train station, the city blocks that are just vacant storefronts as far as you can see. Like I find that really interesting. It's sad. It's tragic to a certain degree, but intriguing and fascinating and, compelling and visually interesting and I, and I just I enjoyed being there I, you know I, I enjoyed sort of exploring the city while I was there and we had a good experience I mean the movie was like very much like a you know we were going for a kind of you know sort of a Stephen King-ish sort of story you know that you know you don't really ever really fully get the explanation as to what's happening to the world and it's a little bit of an existential type mystery but the experience overall was uh was good. Um, and I think we, we got, you know, it wasn't a big budget film. We, we, we got for our, you know, our budget, we got so much, uh, so much scope in that city. Um, you know, while we were there, they were shooting the remake of, um, that red Dawn film from the eighties. They were doing a remake of it and it was set and they, they did all the, the sort of battle scenes in Detroit and, um, and for the same reasons that they wanted a city that looked like it had been <laughs> shot up a little bit or taken over while we were there, they were, you know, they were dressing up all these streets, like 
with Chinese flags and Chinese tanks. And because, of course, that was supposed to be the Chinese, not the Russians this time that took over. <laughs> well, didn't they have to change it from, what was it, the Chinese to the North Koreans or vice versa? I can't yeah. remember. Yeah. No, they did. They changed it to the North Koreans because they suddenly realized, oh, shit, like we just, we just alienated like 1 billion people from watching this movie. So maybe we should change it to North Koreans. We don't care about that audience. And no one likes North Koreans. Yeah. So they digitally, they actually had to digitally go in and change the Chinese flags to North Korean flags. <laughs> Stupid. Well, what are you working on now? I am working, I've got, you know, three or four, as one needs to have, um, different projects in various states of development, I guess you could say. Um, movie projects. Currently, I've got a, a Netflix movie that I'm doing in the fall <clears throat> called Fracture. It's kind of like a, it's not, you know, it's a good pairing with Session 9, actually. It's sort of about a guy who uh, takes his daughter to a hospital when she breaks her arm and she goes off to get an MRI. And while he's waiting, um, he sort of nods off when he wakes up, he goes to see how she's doing. And the receptionist is kind of like, there is no one checked in under that name, sir. I'm afraid you might have, might be at the wrong hospital. And so the movie is about him starting to, you know, question whether there might be some conspiracy against him, and then we're starting to question whether he's maybe lost his mind and it becomes this kind of like Polanski-esque kind of, uh, kind of journey into the paranoid mind. And so it's actually a little bit of a the machinist to meet session nine, actually. We're shooting that uh, in Winnipeg this fall. David Harbour is playing uh, the lead guy. He's great. Um, and uh, yeah, I didn't write the script, but um, it's a good it's a good project, good script. Um, and I've never done anything with Netflix before, but I, you know, they're basically becoming one of the main shows in town, obviously. And they got so much fucking money. Um, they're just throwing it at filmmakers and not a lot of strings attached. So to me, it's like the perfect combination, you know, um, we'll see if that's how it ultimately is, but apparently they're just, they're very like hands off. So yeah, I'm going to do that. And then I've got another, couple projects so again in keeping with my just different kinds of stories I like to tell I've got a historical drama that's set in the 18th century about the first woman to circumnavigate the lengths of the Amazon River it's a sort of big scopey kind of a, a, a historical love story really um, trying to reunite with her husband and uh, called the Mapmaker's wife I'm trying to get that one off the ground I got a movie called The Dwarf which is uh, a dark period sort of drama set in Renaissance Italy um, based on this book from the 50s called The Dwarf, which is sort of a, it was a Nobel Prize winning novel about this court dwarf who takes over the palace from the king. It's kind of this Machiavellian type thing. And it's Peter Dinklage, of course, as you guessed. It's his um, dream project. It's his passion project. He's been trying to get this thing off the ground for a number of years. So I wrote the script. He's on board. And we're hoping to do that one as well. These are tough projects to get going because they're, they're period and they're, they got a scope to them. As people get a little more sick and tired of the big Marvel films and blah, 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 there'll be more of an audience for these kinds of movies, you know, like just adult driven dramas or stories of, of that nature. Cause I, I like those kind of movies. Um, and then I also have a movie that's like a classic uh, kind of haunted house story too. So, you know, 
genre kind of haunted house type story. So yeah, <laughs> three or four different things that are in the works that, um, nothing's, uh, you know, again, it's, it's still, it's become trickier in the past 10 odd years to get financing for indie film. I mean, a lot of that has gone into the Netflix and the Hulus and the Amazons, right? I mean, they're the ones making indie film type films now, which is why I'm going to work with them. Hopefully but to just do it like you did back in the nineties when you, you would find financiers to do movies cause it was sort of trendy. It's harder now. It, you know, the model isn't the same. And so, you know, there's a lot of, you go overseas like I did with machinist. I mean, I had to, you know, that movies shot in Barcelona, Spain, because the only place you could find financing for was in Spain. Like find the money here. We tried, but, no one was interested so the Spaniards were like yeah we'll do it but you gotta shoot in Barcelona so I was like alright it's okay by me we'll figure out a way to do it so you know you kinda go where the money is you know and right now the money isn't in it's harder to find money here it's actually easier to find it overseas um, so some of these projects would probably be shot there I imagine if they come together I read a rumor a long time ago that you were working on uh, adaptation of Concrete Island by Ballard is that true? Yeah, that was something that was uh, that was moving forward at one point. This was a Christian Bale. He, uh, we were going to do that. Um, Scott Kersar, same group that did the Machinist. Um, he he loved this book, and we optioned it, and he wrote a script. Um, Christian was on board, and it's a very tough adaptation because it's like essentially like Robinson Crusoe on a highway, like <laughs> highway. Change Island, you know, guy crashes his car. I don't know if you read the book, but he's like stuck there. He's, his legs broken, and then like there's even a, like a Friday character, like a truck, like a like a native who lives there. This homeless guy kind of befriends him, and it's very twisted and dark and weird. And that's what Scott loved about it, and we liked it. And we we, we just couldn't crack the script, you know. We just wasn't something we could. We just couldn't find a way to get it to where it needed to be. And so ultimately, it just sort of it just didn't pan out and Christian had to go on to do other things, but, um, yeah, we tried, you know, it would have, it would have been a cool project. And, you know, maybe, maybe it'll come together at some other point. I don't know. Sometimes it happens. Well, Brad, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a real pleasure talking with you. Yeah. Good talking to you too. Uh, you know, um, it's fun. It's good to, it's always nice to recount, recount the good old days. You know, <laughs> How did you decide to get into show business? The cheap answer is I had nothing better to do. Um, and it's, well, actually, that's, that, that, that is a cheap answer. I was going to be a painter. Uh, I grew up in New York City in Manhattan, and I thought after my stint in college, I was going to become a painter and quickly realized that painting is a very solitary profession. And I, I didn't particularly want to do that anymore. And then there was a couple of years of being adrift and working in restaurants. And, and then someone suggested to me that I, for lack of anything better to do, uh, why don't you become a PA? Like, you know, work on commercials and whatever, become a production assistant. 
And uh, I did that. Uh, and that then led to acting, uh, but not in any sort of conscious. It wasn't a plan. But once I started PAing, and I'm not, I'm not joking, everybody I would meet, other PAs, producers, actors, whoever, they all just simply assumed that this was my in to the film business, to becoming an actor. And when, when, when they found out that, no, in fact, I had no idea what they were talking about, they were incredulous and would, well, that's what you should be doing. And uh, about two years of that, I'm a slow, I'm a slow learner. Um, about yeah, about two years, a year and a half, two years. I finally looked around. I wasn't making any money paying because I started in the film business here in New York City in September of 1990, which in retrospect couldn't have been more of a bad time to start in the film business in New York. There's nothing going on here, really uh, substantial. All the films had moved out of here, and there was really very little work. Comparatively speaking, like compared to now, there was nothing. But uh, even compared to like 1996, there was nothing. Law and Order hadn't started yet, and all that stuff hadn't started yet. So I wasn't making any money as a PA, and it was the only business I knew anybody in. And everybody thought I should be an actor. And I figured since I'm not making any money anyway, why don't I try not to make any money as an actor? So that's how that happened. So did you take classes for it? No, 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 no. <laughs> no, no acting classes for me. Uh, that's, again, that's kind of not completely. I took an acting class when I was, I think, like in seventh grade or sixth grade or something like that. Somebody, some teacher thought I might have a good time in this acting class at the YMCA that was free, you know, on a Saturday morning, something like that. And I did go to that. And I remember being wildly disappointed by the by the teacher who was having us, you know, pick a tree that we were going to be, you know, or, you know, now now pick an animal that you want to be and act that out. You know, what does it mean to be a birch tree or what does it mean to be a, a possum or something? And I thought we were going to do scene study. I mean, I didn't know it was called scene study at the time, but I thought we were going to, like, get some, you know, scene from a play and read it and pretend to be people. About an hour of that, and I just kind of left, and that was that was my experience with acting class. When you're doing these early acting gigs, are you still in New York, or do you go out to California for those? No, no, I, I've always been based out of, out of New York City. Uh, I mean, I've gone to California for when when the work was there. You know, I mean, if uh, yeah, you know, if, if there was something to do in California work wise, I would do that. But no, I, I there was, it was everything has ninety percent of the work has been out of New York City. Tell me about how you got involved with Brad Anderson and Session 9. Uh, Brad and I went to college together, and we were kind of friendly in college. We, we, were, we were sort of ran in the same circles. So we knew each other at college, although neither of us, well, we went to a liberal arts college. We went to Bowdoin College, which is a liberal arts school, which didn't have an acting or a film program. Like major, you couldn't major in those things. You could take some film classes here and, you know, an acting class there and a theater class here. Uh, so we cut, but we kind of knew each other from that. And then it turns out that he wound up in the film business and he did a picture called the Darien Gap, which got a little attention, I think, at Sundance. Anyway, enough attention to get him some money to make a picture called Next Stop Wonderland. And by that point, I had been in both Smoke and Blue in the Face, two pictures that he had seen and remembered me 
from college and he called me up and asked if I'd be interested in auditioning for Next Stop Wonderland or like he sent me the script and said, what would you like to be in this? And I said, well, I'd like to be the lead as, as every, <laughs> every good actor does. And apparently the lead was, uh, spoken for, but it turned out that we wound up working together, rehearsing and trying to find a part for me in that picture. And I, I, I feel like I remember helping him with, re- uh, not with rehearsals, but with casting. Like I was, I was subbing in as the lead actor when he was looking for his, the female lead. And I was the guy, you know, kind of reading the, the part of the, the male lead. Uh, long and short of it, we didn't wind up working together in that movie, but maintained a relationship. And by the time he'd finished shooting that picture, he moved to New York City from where he was living up in uh, the greater Boston area. And that's, that, that's how we got together in the film business. It was really, I remember the cause. So he woke me up on some Tuesday afternoon at 2 after a night of drinking on my part and introduced himself, you know, yeah, Hey, I'm Brad Anderson. Like, oh yeah, I remember you. What's going on? And they you know, kind of told me that story. I'm making this picture called next stop wonderland. Saw blue in the face. Would you like to be in the picture? And I'm like, well, yeah, sure. And then, and then we developed a relationship that, you know, lasted for a while. I am curious. What were those experiences like working with Wayne Wang? That was extraordinary. I mean, at the time I understood I was, it was clear to me that this was an opportunity. I mean, I got hired to be a reader for rehearsals for Wayne and Harvey and uh, William Hurt. The producer, one of the producers of that picture was a friend of mine from my PA days. And she, uh, by that point, I started acting. I'd done a couple of things. And she asked me if I wanted to come in and be the reader during rehearsals for all the secondary parts, you know, in these scenes, you know, so like there's a scene with, Harvey and, and Bill, and there's a waiter or a waitress, and I'm the guy just reading that to keep the scene going, you know? And she sold it to me basically by saying, look, you get to meet Harvey Keitel, William Hurt, Wayne Wang, and Paul Oster. To be admittedly ignorant of culture, I had no idea who Paul Oster was. And Wayne was kind of just starting out at that point. I mean, he'd, he'd made a, a splash with his first picture. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but I, I knew the name at any rate. And of course I knew who William Hurt and Harvey Keitel were. And I was like, of course, yeah, sure. I'll sit in the room and with these guys, worst case scenario, I get to meet these guys. That's kind of cool. You know, they were just, uh, I have to say, I mean, it was one of the most open and I mean, really, and I, you know, everybody says this in an interview, I'm very clear on this, but I've seen enough interviews, but the truth is that, that process, that two-week re- rehearsal process that I was a part of, that then turned into me being in those movies, was one of the most open, creative, artistic, in the true sense of what, with a small a, you know, I use that word artistic advisedly, uh, moments that I have had in the business. It was, in a one way, glorious, and another way, uh, kind of upsetting because I just kind of felt like, well, this is what, this is what the film business is about. And no, it's not, (laughs) it's, it's, it's never this good. And it was, it really was an extraordinary moment where everybody was just happy for information. You know, I'm a guy reading the bit parts in a scene, you know, and I remember Wayne and Paul were looking, looked at me, looked at me and said, do you have anything to contribute? 
like, what, what are you talking about? I'm, I'm just an, I'm just some asshole in a room reading the waitress part, you know, and uh, do, do you have anything to say? Uh, and I remember keeping my mouth shut, to be honest with you, for the most part. I would, me and Paul Oster would have lengthy conversations when Harvey and Bill would kick us out for private rehearsal. Because, you know, you, you know, rehearsing is, is, is a very private, private thing. It's, you know, like making sausages, doing the laundry. You don't want people watching that who don't need to be in the room. And, and so me and Paul would go outside on the street and smoke a cigarette. Well, he would smoke his Schimmelpinnix. And we'd just shoot the shit about the script and, uh, and talk. And again, uh, remarkably open to just talking to some kid. And I mean, I mean, I wasn't, you know, 19. I was like 20. When was that 24? So I was 28, I guess. 2094. Yes, yeah, so I was 28. So I wasn't some kid, but I, I certainly wasn't. You know what I'm saying? It, it, he didn't. He Paul didn't need to be that uh, inclusive at all. You know, uh, and nor did Wayne, and nor did Bill, frankly, or, or Harvey. I mean, they were all like, remarkably open to just my presence, let alone my opinion. You know, and so. And then, and then that, so I, I got hired as that. And then I'm not exactly sure what happened, uh, but eventually uh, I wound up getting hired. I, I, I thought the movie was cast at that point. Apparently it wasn't, or it was. And the guy that I wound up portraying in the movie couldn't do it for scheduling difficulties. I'm not sure what the real story is, but, you know, it's always confusing and uh, you never really know what goes on and behind the scenes. But, Long and short of it, I went from the guy reading the waitress part to being, you know, OTB guy number three, I think. was. You know, he didn't even have a character name. None of them did, actually. None of those characters did. Uh, John Carlos or Jose's or mine and the original script were just OTB man one, two, and three. So, Speaking of numbered characters, I read that you were Klingon number one in an episode of Star Trek. Is that true? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, it's the thing. Yeah, I was Klingon number one in an episode of Deep Space Nine, my favorite of the three Star Treks after the original series. Although I, I, you know, all due respect to Patrick Stewart and Jean-Luc Picard, but I just happened to love the world of Deep Space Nine. I think it was the darkest and most interesting, politically fraught and religiously fraught world, and I got to play Klingon number one in an episode called crossover and it happens to be, and will probably remain one of the most important moments in my career as an actor. Cause I was a huge, a science fiction fan still am, but B star, uh, star Trek fan all through elementary school. And that episode actually is very important in the star Trek world because it is uh, a, a tip of the hat to a very important episode in the original series called Mirror Mirror, where you get, um, uh, you know, through the transporter thing, Kirk and a couple of other, Uhura, I think, and Scotty, they wind up in an alternate universe where Spock has a goatee. And, it, you know, that, that, that's, I think that's called Mirror Mirror. I'm pretty sure it is. And crossover crossover was a tip of the hat to that they've done it since a couple of times i think but that was the first time i think i'm not a star trek expert so you don't want to mess with the star trek people because they'll fuck with you you know you don't want to get it wrong <laughs> but i think that was the first time they tipped a hat to that episode and and what i was told on the episode oh there's a great story here so i'm on the paramount lot which is also 
was was just remarkable. I was I was out in L.A. doing a, a movie. Uh, my first real big break was this picture called Boys on the Side with Whoopi Goldberg and Drew Barrymore and Mary Louise Parker. And um, I didn't work. I only worked with, with Whoopi. But, uh, and then Matthew plays a rakish Southern boyfriend in Boys on the Side. Again, I didn't work with them. I got to meet them all. And that was great, too. It was my, my first picture. But so I was out in L.A. doing that. And then I booked this Star Trek thing. And I got to go to the Paramount lot which you know, is, is, it's a pretty iconic moment for, I think, any actor to go through those arches. I, I don't care how jaded you are and how old you are. You're at the Paramount lot. It's Paramount Pictures. I mean, it, you know, whatever. It's kind of just cool. I was told that by, by working on that, that first of all, Klingon number one on that show was the first time a Klingon behaved subserviently to a woman in all of the Star Trek universes, like all the episodes that had never happened. And my character is, uh, that's how we introduce my character. I am apologetic to a woman played by Nana visitor and in this alternate universe where she run the Bajorans run everything and they're not victims. You know, they're just in power of their destiny and blah, 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 blah. And I got beamed in and out, which I was told by the Star Trek people, Nana and, uh, who else did I work with on that? Uh, God, I can't remember his name now. The guy who plays Bashir. They're like, oh, you're going to get beamed in and out. Everybody wants to get beamed in and out. Like, it, that was the thing back then. Like, if you were doing a guest spot on Star Trek, the first question was, do I get beamed in and out or not? And I got to say, I was, I was, it, was, it was an extraordinary, uh, it, maybe you can <laughs> tell by, by the enthusiasm with which I'm talking about this, that still, however many years later, 24 years later, it, it, was, it was really, really cool. And I didn't steal anything, by the way. I just want to be very clear. I didn't, I didn't take a T-shirt. I didn't take a phaser because I just had respect for the thing. I was like, I'm not, I can't take anything. I just got to respect the thing. And you got to wear all that makeup. How long was that makeup process? Four hours every morning. I got there, my call, like, so, you know, set time was eight. I, my call was four, four, four o'clock in, in makeup. Frankly, they had it down to a science. I mean, those guys were the shit. I mean, that's another great thing about it was a really weird moment. So I'm walking through the Paramount lot. I'm some schmuck in Klingon in a Klingon headdress and outfit walking to the commissary, you know, and everybody on the lot that would see you executives, you know, in $5,000 suits. And they'd all just kind of look at you and like sort of nod their head. Like, yeah, all right. The Paramount at that point had such a respect for that franchise and for those people because they were also, you know, you know I don't know if a lot of people know this, but like the computer generated, like all the lights and stuff that are flashing on the like dashboards of the space shuttle or the thing, they're all run by a guy backstage who's making sure that it makes sense in the Star Trek universe. It's not just random lights going on and off. They're like, okay, yeah, no, this is happening. Well, that light needs to go on. Isn't that fucking amazing? I mean, and anyway, so you would walk around the Paramount lot, and I, again, I'm some schmuck, Klingon number one, Deep Space Nine, and people would just, yeah, you know, give you that, like, yeah, that's right, you're Klingon number one, <laughs> you know, you're working on Star Trek. It, it was very, very, it was like this remarkable moment, plus all the, like, 10-year-old, why can't I be in Star Trek thing was happening. It was, it was a really great, great moment in my career. Yeah, I've talked to some other actors, and they're just like, I always wanted to do a Star Trek. Just put me in something. Put me anywhere. 
then you got to live the dream, man. That's awesome. Oh, damn straight. I mean, Christian Slater, right? I mean, he did that what one line, and I forget which which movie, you know. And you see that all the time. It's it's the same thing with Star Wars. I mean, frankly, I would uh, I would love to be in Star Wars, uh, any sort of thing. Like, well, it's like Benicio del Toro in 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 the Last Jedi, right? I mean, just to be in Star Wars, and that's this. I mean, and for me, actually, Star Wars and Star Trek are equally important you know touchstones for me in, in my little formative year childhood <laughs> you know they talk about this being the golden age of television and i think that you were on one of those first shows that really kind of broke a lot of ground with oz and i'm curious what your experience was with that that was another extraordinarily lovely experience that i have I've been I've been very lucky and and extraordinarily unlucky, but I mean that's the nature of the business, really. But in terms of that, I, I have to say that so Oz was an interesting thing because I, I I came in sort of halfway through the season, that first season, and I remember the audition. I remember getting the material, and it was for a biker dude. I remember reading the material and going, "Well, okay, I'm not this guy. I, I have no. Why am I going in on this?" I'm not a biker dude. I'm sort of, uh, I don't have tattoos. I, I'm not bearded. You know, I mean, I'm not the stereotypical biker dude. So I didn't really particularly care at all about the audition because I was sure that this was not going to go further than me reading, you know, these few pages and, and I'll go home and, and somebody will tell me I didn't get it. And then there I am, you know, in the show. And the other thing is I had no idea who was part of the show. I didn't know it was Tom Fontana. I didn't know the pedigree of it, which probably helped me a lot in the audition because I wasn't worried about, oh my God, this is Tom Fontana. This is HBO. I really went in completely ignorant. And uh, I, you know, I'm ambivalent about saying this, but sometimes ignorance is in fact bliss. You know, if you don't know what's at stake or what's on the line, then you can just kind of be yourself and do your thing, which is apparently what I did. And they responded to it. And there I was. In terms of working on it, again, it was fantastic because Tom was there. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, he was writing that first season ostensibly on his own. I, I don't, I mean, I'm sure he had help, but it was certainly his words or like they wound up being his words, if that makes sense, right? If you had, you get the script and if you had a question, I mean, I never had a problem with any of the words. I was like, this is perfectly fine to say. But if you had a, if you had an, if you had a question about like, okay, what are we doing here? Or, you know, is there an agenda that I don't know about that you want me to foreshadow or hit? Or, you know, is there something going on that you need me to know about? He was in the office, you know, right there on set. So, again, another room. And, and his office was open. It wasn't this, you know, I'm the executive producer creator and go fuck yourself if you want to get anywhere near me. But rather, hey, how you doing? How's it going? You like what I wrote for you today? Good. Want to talk about it? No? Okay, fine. You don't? You know? And again, a remarkably open, non-hierarchical uh, creative moment where we, you could just, you know, do what you did. And I, as I recall, all the other actors that I got to know, J.K. Simmons and I worked a lot together, and we actually shared a, a whatchamacallit, uh, a dressing room together, which is funny. Those dressing rooms that we shared together on the set were more uncomfortable than the prison rooms that we shared. In, because the prison actually was air conditioned for the sake of the crew, but the rest of the the same we, we all shot this on one floor of the Nabisco building the first season in New York City, and 
like it was it was an abandoned factory, and so they put everything up there from the dressing rooms to hair and makeup to the grip department had their you know shit up there, and then there was the set of Oz, the prison itself, and yeah, the prison was much more pleasant to be in than the dressing rooms. So the dressing rooms were you know we shot it. I mean, I shot it in the summer, and it was you know ninety eight degrees and no air conditioning was awful, but it was really sweet and nice and open. I mean, considering the, the subject matter, it was, it was a very pleasant, you know, experience. And then I knew Harold from smoke, you know, and that was fun, you know, and we didn't work together a lot. I don't think we actually had any, we were in a scene or two together, but we didn't, you know, have anything to do. So you weren't able to make it work for a next up wonderland, but you did get to work on happy accidents. What was that experience like? Oh, that was just fun. I mean, you know, he had that series of bad dates. And I've said this before in an interview. If I get a chance to do a shitty French accent and be kind of a jerk, it's, you know, there's, there's no end of fun to that. And I think I had one line in that, which was, I think, no, or something like that, or we, oui, or something. I don't know. It was just, I got to be, uh, you know, a self-important French person. And again, I mean, I love the French, not for nothing. I love a good steak of poivre and I love a French bistro, but it's just always fun to do a goofy little character and there's nothing on the line, right? Because it's just comedy and you just got to make sure you get a laugh. And I think, I think, I think it was funny. And yeah, that was, by that point, me and, me and Brad had, I think we had started working on session nine by that point. I can't really remember how that timeline went down, but. It was close. If we hadn't started working on it or talking about it, it was certainly going to be close. And yeah, again, it was one of those things where like, I'm doing this picture called Happy Accident. Would you like to be in it? I said, yes, I'd like to be the lead. He's like, well, that's going to be Vince. And I'm like, yeah, all right, fine. Uh, I guess it has to be Vince D'Onofrio. Uh, what else can I do? And then we found that little part for me to you know, come in on. And what was also nice about that, there was a producer on that, Susan Stover, who I'd done... I think I've worked with at least once before. Long and short of it is I'd worked with Susan, his producer on that. And again, it was just a nice little New York moment. You know, hey, do you want to come in here and do this? Sure. Yeah, that'd be fun. You know, why not? Well, how did you and Brad decide to actually uh, work together on the screenplay for Session 9? Again, that was Brad. We were hanging out at his birthday party, and we just ordered a couple of margaritas. He said, hey, do you want to write a horror movie with me? And I said, sure. And that was that. And that's how it began. That was December of 99. And by October of 2000, we had the picture in the can. Well, you said that you're a sci-fi fan. Were you a horror fan as well? Oh, yes. Yes. You're very much so. When I was a kid growing up in the 70s in New York City, it's, it's interesting you mentioned the golden age of television. I think, you know, it depends on when you, how do you define the golden age? And every weekend, all through the 1970s, you had all of the Hammer movies, all of the old 1950s, 60s, Drac like B Dracula movies from Hollywood, all these like, and, and, you know, the science fiction, like The Thing, uh, and, uh, Them, and all those like weird communist propaganda movies, they would be on TV. I mean, I've seen the entire Hammer catalog at least four times by the time I got to be 14 because of how they were broadcast on, on network television in the 1970s. And again, like all these weird Dracula movies that was like the bride of Dracula. I, I think that was one of them where just creepy, you know, in retrospect, B movies, but 
they had they had something. They, you know, when you're nine years old, it's scary to see a vampire in a flowing billowy white dress in the middle of the woods. You know, and they have this effect on you. Similarly, giant ants coming at you in the desert, like you know, in them or something like that. I was a fan of all that, and then of course all the Godzilla movies and the King Kong movies. You know, all the Japanese monster movies, Mothra. You know, I've seen them all at least four times, and that was you know when I was a kid. And then by the late seventies, I and then in the meantime, I'm also watching Star Trek. So I was a fan of all of those genres, but I guess if I had to pick one, they would be sci-fi over, over horror, really. But I liked them all. You, you've made this joke a few times as far as when Brad asked you if you want to be part of this, you're like, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll be the lead. Were you? Did you also want to be the lead of Session 9? I'm an actor, and there's no actor worth his weight that doesn't always just want to be a lead. I mean, any actor that tells you otherwise is full of shit. Now, there are moments when that doesn't apply, and Session 9 was one of those, because now I wasn't just an actor, I was also a writer, and it was going to be an ensemble piece. Obviously, we needed to hang the story on someone. Uh, it couldn't just be, say, Diner, for example, because we needed, because it was a horror movie and we wanted a plot, you know, uh, as much as I love Diner, there's not much of a plot there, right? It's just people hanging out talking, and you can pick who you want to be your hero in that story. Whereas in session nine, we, we, we wanted it to be a pretty traditional narrative, or at least I think we did. I, I don't, we never had that conversation, but that's what it turned into. So somebody was going to have to be the guy that we hang the story on. And, and my profile at that point wasn't big enough to warrant that it be me in the business side of it. So, so to answer, so no, not really. I was happy to be you know, a part of it. And we made it very, I think we were very judicious. I know, I know we were, we, we wrote every character, every character had a speech, every character had their moment. And we were, and that wasn't just art. It was also, we wanted the actors that were going to be offered the parts or come in for the parts to be excited that they have something to do that they're not just in service of, you know, they're not just the the goofy girlfriend or the techie boyfriend or whatever the hell, you know, we wanted everybody to have something to do that was in service of the story and in service of the, what do you call it? Ensemble. So no. So the answer is no, I was, I was happy to be Mike. What was your guys' process when you were writing this together? Uh, in what sense? Like, are you like, well, I'll take the, this scene, you take that scene, or are you just spitballing ideas and somebody's, you know, at the typewriter or how's, how's the actual like day to day working through this? It was a little bit of all that. There were moments where, a, you know, a scene would come up and we would split, you know, he would, we'd both write a version of it and come back with stuff. That didn't happen a lot. Uh, at that time, Brad was much more proficient, A, on the typewriter, and, uh, like, literally, he was just a better typer. But he was also, you know, he had some screenplays under his belt, and I hadn't at that point. But what I was good at was we would come up with a scene idea. We'd say, okay, we need this to happen, whatever this was. And we'd be in a room together and this happened quite a bit and and where I would act the whole scene out or me and Brad would act the scene out. A lot of the times it was me playing all the characters in the scene and Brad would be furiously typing what he could remember uh when as you know, as it's coming out of my mouth. And then when we got to a certain point where the thing started forming itself you know, there, there's a push and pull with, with the creative process where, you know, you, you create something and then the thing 
starts telling you where it's going. And when that happened, we literally, this was in 1999, we wrote the index cards out. And I remember this is that story. And we, we would, we would, we had, we put it all on his carpet in Brad's apartment and looked at the movie, you know, like, okay, here's that story. Here's this story. Here's where they intersect. Here's a gap. We need a scene here. We need that. And that, that was sort of towards the end of the process, but well, towards the end of, of the finished first draft where we were literally, it became a, and, and for me, that was important. It became a visual problem. Uh, starting as a painter, I, I could understand, I could see that much more clearly than keeping all the words in my head. I could see, okay, look here, we've got a gap here of like three cards, you know, and we need to find a bridge between this and that. And, and can we relate this to that and et cetera, et cetera. And so that was that. And, that, and so at the end of the day, Brad took all of that information that was created by the two of us and knocked out uh, a first draft. And then I, at that point, started acting like his editor to, to a degree, I guess, where I'd read it and go, well, it's dragging here, you know, just giving notes, you know. And then we did that, I think we did that twice. And then the third draft is what we wound up taking out to people and selling. Uh, the big, and the big, the big difference between the second and third draft was something that I'd noticed that and I think, and I, I will take, take credit for this, like one of the things that people talk about when they talk about session nine is that it makes them feel uncomfortable. And I'm really proud, proud of that because that's something me and Brad wanted, at least if not the horror, at the very least, we wanted people to be set on edge. And one of the things that we did as a little trick was by the second draft, I think, I remember reading it and going, Brad, every, we have a bunch of scenes between two people. Let's introduce a third character. I don't care where the guy comes from. I don't particularly care if it makes sense that he's there. But let's have as much as we can, unless it completely destroys the narrative, let's have three people or at least two people talking and a third person walking in. And, you know, it's like it's that old adage, you know, the, 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 the third wheel thing, you know. And when you have three people on the scene, as a viewer, it's hard to know where to go. Like, it's easier with just one person or two people, or a couple, right? So four people. So two people and two people. You can, but three people, people get edgy. You know, when you have three people on the scene, because it's just like, ah, oh, God, who do I pay attention to? I mean, just, and so that was a very conscious thing we did with the final draft is to, um, as, as much as the narrative allowed it, to make that happen where, you're just watching something, even if even if what they're talking about isn't particularly disturbing or edgy or whatever. It's just that there's three people standing there and you don't know what to do with yourself. Almost all of the characters that we see on screen are men, and there's always that thing of men shit talking one another and kind of uh, like busting each other's balls. So it's like once you get the three guys in there, it's usually two pick on one or you know that kind of thing too, which is a nice way to do it. Three women, three men, two men, one woman, two women, one man. It's the third man out thing. I mean, there is, you know, not for nothing, one of my favorite movies is called The Third Man, and it's for a reason. The, the, Graham Greene knew what he was talking about there. It, it, there's a subconscious thing where, where, like, you can be three great friends going out for beers in the neighborhood. You can be two of them, and it's going to be fine. If you bring a third guy along, it just alters the dynamic because... Now there's this, like, who, even if you're all good friends and there's no weird agenda it, or there's no agenda at all, 
I, I think certainly in a picture, in this artifice of movies, it's hard for the audience to figure out, if, if, especially if you're not cutting a lot. And Brad didn't do a lot of cutting in that picture, which is one of his great things as a director. He's got the balls to let the scene happen. And if, if, you know, if you've got like two guys talking, he, he'll just let a third guy walk in. I'm thinking specifically, I mean, he cuts a little bit, you know, just to get the story moving, but he, he lets this third element in and just sort of sits there. And now it's up to you as the viewer to decide, is that important? Is that not important? And that just puts you on edge because now you're, you forgot what, well, what the hell was the scene about? Right. And so, and you're kind of doing work. And I think that's another thing that's also great about good movies. And I, I say this with all humility. I mean, is when you ask the audience to participate actively. Sometimes there's pushback, but I think for the most part, I've never thought audiences were stupid. Today, 20 years ago, 40 years ago, I think audiences want to participate. And if you're given an opportunity to wonder what's important, what isn't important, and you don't show them, you know, by cutting and over, you know what I'm saying, by, hey, here's the gun, you take a, a shot of the gun, and everybody goes, oh, well, the gun, that's important. You know, you get my point. Back to your point about the golden age of television, beginning with Oz, I think in a lot of ways, Oz, like you said, and Sopranos asked more questions than they answered, and that's why they were as, success as successful as they were. I mean, one of the great things about Oz and the Sopranos and well, Breaking Bad is, well, is this bad? Is this wrong? Are these people bad? I can understand what's happening here on one level, and I'm also disgusted on another level, and now I have to have a dialogue with myself. And if you can get that going, I think that's, you know, that's when you kind of win. It doesn't mean you're going to make a lot of money, but it doesn't mean you're going to win, you know? So what was it like for you to go from that writing process to actually seeing these actors? And, and were you involved much in the uh, casting process? Very little in the casting process. I, I was sitting in the room for a few sessions and Brad looked at me and was like, you need to not be here anymore, right? And I was like, yeah, I can't be here anymore. It was messing up my, from an actor standpoint, I was, I was becoming confused about who Mike was and what, what I was going to do. You know, not that it was set in stone at any, in any way, but it was just getting muddied to no good end. So no, I wasn't, I mean, I was involved in the casting process insofar as like we would look at, you know, headshots and whatnot and, then tape would come through and Brad would say, what do you think? And occasionally, but I, it was really Brad's decision. It was, you know, Brad's decision and, and the studio's decision. I had a voice, but a, a very minimal one. It was the, the one thing I just said very early on. And I think I kept it to that was we're making a horror movie. So we need to be careful who we cast in this. If we don't want it to be a B horror movie. And unfortunately there is that, at least there was then that stereotype of, you know, B actors, A actors, you get my point. And if we don't want this just to be a B horror movie, we got to, let's try and cast people that don't have horror baggage. Does that make sense? You know what I mean? And, uh, and that was difficult because that meant casting people that probably didn't have any baggage at all. And you know, at that point, I don't know what, Josh Lucas was the most, well, other than David Caruso, but Josh Lucas had the most, you know, the biggest career, I think, at that point. I mean, Peter Mullen was known, but he was known for My Name is Joe. I mean, 
he was in a household name. Neither was anybody in that picture other than Caruso. But and the great thing about Caruso was he also didn't have any horror baggage. He just had Caruso baggage, right? He was on NYPD Blue. Speaking of the golden age of television, I mean that guy and that show. You could make an argument, you know, without NYPD Blue, you know, Oz doesn't necessarily happen in the way it does. You know, where you know, uh, if you can do that on network television, well, then what can you do on cable? You know. Well, what was it like for you working with these guys once you got them all casted? I don't think there's a guy. I don't think there's anybody on that. We all lived together in the same hotel down the block from the institution where we were shooting. So that was odd. So we were living in this huge brick, red brick institution down the block from the big red brick institution that we were living in. And we would, uh, you know, there was nothing to do. We were on Route 1 about a half hour north of Boston. So. I think I went into Boston once with Josh. Uh, he might have gone in a couple of times. I mean, we didn't do anything. We just went downstairs to the, the hotel bar and hung out every day. And Peter will, I think Peter will attest to this, and Josh uh, and Caruso. No, Brendan Sexton, yeah. Who actually I did a picture with before. Uh, I was in Hurricane Street and got cut, cut out of it. That's how I knew Brendan. It was from Hurricane Street. And, and, and actually, Brendan was... was the first person cast in the picture, I don't know if he knows this, but me and Brad knew him. I knew him from doing Hurricane Streets and from just kicking around the city. He was, a, you know, a kid and, well, a kid. He was, you know, four years younger than me, but that makes a lot of difference when you're 22 versus 26 or something like that, right? And I knew him from Hurricane Streets, and Brad knew him from that picture as well, but didn't know him, know him. I just, I knew him from hanging out as well. And when we wrote the movie... I was like, we, Brendan is the guy. Brendan is the puppy dog in the movie. He's, he's, the, he's the kid that gets killed and makes everybody feel bad. And he's the kid that makes sure everybody knows this is a horror movie. And it's got to be Brendan because he's just great. You know, he's, he's, and he is. He's just fantastic. He's got that preternatural ability to look lost without even trying. Like, he's that good kid who's trying really hard, you know, and then, and then he gets killed. And it's just, it's just the perfect, it was, for my money, it was the perfect bit of casting. And fortunately, everybody went along with it. But again, I didn't hire him. I just suggested him. But I'm happy, you know, my suggestion took hold. But in terms of like hanging out, yeah, we all just would hang out every night at the hotel bar, get loaded. And you could still smoke in bars then. So Caruso was smoking cigars. He wasn't drinking at the time. And everybody else was smoking cigarettes. When Peter Mullen got cast, that was problematic for me because he was... We didn't know who was who Gordon was going to be, and I don't know how that how Peter got involved. I mean, obviously they sent him a script, but I don't know who sent the script to him. And but one day Brad called me up and was like, "Well, this guy's going to be in the movie." I was like, "Peter Mullen, who's Peter Mullen?" Well, watch this movie called My Name Is Joe. It's one of the more gut wrenching pictures you'll see. And Peter Mullen was the lead. He plays Joe. He's an alcoholic, and it's his story up in Scotland maybe Edinburgh. I'm not sure where it's set, but so they send me, I go out and get my name is Joe and I watch it and we're about three weeks out, maybe four weeks out before we're going to shoot. And I'm pretty confident in my role seeing as that I wrote it and I thought about it quite a bit and I kind of think I know what I'm going to do. And I'm pretty, you know, I'm pretty confident. And then I watch my name is Joe and I realized this guy's going to be Gordon. And I literally, I told this to Peter. I was like, I shit my pants. I was like, oh, fuck. I got to do some homework. I got, I got to, 
I really got to bring my game. I thought I was going to get to coast on this, but because I wrote it and I, you know, but no, no, no. And this guy's going to be in this movie with me. Holy shit. And, you know, not for nothing. I think we got so lucky with the casting of that picture from Josh to, to Brendan, to David. I mean, David Perus, I mean, and, and uh, obviously Peter, but David was great because David and I immediately bonded because he's from New York city. I'm from New York city. And we were just giving each other shit the whole time. It was just, just, just flipping each other shit on screen. I mean, you know, on set, off set, but also, but in a very jovial fashion, but just fucking with each other in, a, in that sort of New York City way, which very few people understand who aren't from New York. Everybody gets offended. <laughs> not from New York. Everybody's immediately, I can't believe you just said that. And they're like, what? Said what? What? What's the problem? What the fuck? And David and I were very much of that, of that mind. You know, he's a little older than me, but not enough for it to be a problem. I want to ask you what you're uh, working on these days. What's next for you? Oh, right now, I'm actually shooting the second season of The Deuce for HBO. Uh, if you're familiar with that, it's about Hell's Kitchen, 42nd Street, porn industry. And I play a pornographer of sorts. I can't talk too much about it, uh, but I think, I think that's... I, I'm in the porn business, let's put it that way. What's great about that is we're, we're finishing up the second season in August. Um, I guess I'll be shooting the finale in August, I think. Uh, what's great about that is I grew up in the neighborhood. And weirdly, my father was an actor and was about the age that my character is in the show. If, if we're going to go with the fact that my character is the age that I am. Is that, you know, if, if you, it's a little bit of a, a stretch. But, but what's interesting is I get to basically play my dad living in moving from Europe to Hell's Kitchen, trying to be an actor in Hell's Kitchen in my old neighborhood. And so it's been, um, that's been just great. And not to mention the fact that it's fucking David Simon and HBO and uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal and James Franco, who unfortunately I haven't been able to work with, but every other actor, I mean, honestly, it's, these guys it's on attract schmucks, you know, it's, it's just a great, again, I have been very, very lucky that I get to be in the show with great writing and, and, oh, and Uta Brezowitz, in fact, just directed me, who was the DP of Session 9, just directed me in an episode of The Deuce, and we got to work together again with her being a director and not a DP, but that was great. Because um, I don't know if you know, Uta basically created the look and the vibe of The Wire. She was the DP on that for the first two or three seasons, if I'm not mistaken. I think it was certainly the first two, if not the first three. And um, so we're doing that. I'm doing that right now. And then actually tomorrow I'm doing a, a, a lovely little turn in Amy Sedaris' show, Amy Sedaris at Home. Yeah, that's going to be a lot of fun. I get to play uh, a goofy husband to Martha Plimpton, I think. Yeah, just a little comedy. <laughs> yeah, a little comedy to relieve some of the strum and drung of the deuce. I haven't seen it, but I'm told it's a... It's a it's a dark it's not there's not a lot of laughs uh, in that show but yes yeah, so I'm doing that and then I've got like uh, you know and then needless to say got a horror movie that I'm trying to get off the ground I've got another sort of kitchen sink drama about Hell's Kitchen that I'm trying to get off the ground a couple of TV shows writing got a band going you know the whole thing it's like one big creative fart now I know you said you haven't worked with James Franco but have you worked with his twin brother 
I have not. I've not worked with his twin brother either. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, it is It is odd because you'd think that they'd you'd run into one of them, but no. I did meet James at the cast read-through, but I don't think I met his twin. Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure which one I met. I think I met James, but I, I might have met his twin brother. It's hard to tell because they're twins. You got to look for the birthmark. Oh, is that what you got? Oh, I didn't know there was one. Well, okay, all right, next time. Stephen, thank you so much for your time. This has been great. Hey, I really appreciate the. Uh, can I ask why? What happened? Like, what? What made you reach out? Well, we're doing an episode on Session Nine this year for our uh, October series on horror films, and Session Nine is, you know, it's it's a very unusual film. It's not one of these like, what do they call them now? Uh, 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 torture porn movies. You know, it's not just blatant sure, right. craziness kind of thing, but it creeps you the fuck out. It just got such a, a great vibe to it. It kind of, you know, feels like it's channeling a little bit of The Shining. It's got that really great ensemble cast, that music that puts you on the edge. So I was just like, yeah, let's cover Session 9. Yeah, oh, I, oh thank you. Well, I appreciate it. Uh, anything to get that movie out a little more to the kids. And I appreciate and, and you know, you're absolutely right. Uh, all those things were boxes that we wanted to check off. Everything you just, uh, you know, uh, listed. Uh, including being inspired by Session 9, but also more obscure movies like Burnt Offerings that weren't very good, but had a creepy vibe to them, you know? That, that uh, like, I'm, I remember seeing Burnt Offerings again when I was an adult, and it was just an awful movie. But as, as a 10-year-old or a 9, when I first saw it, it, it just it stuck with you because of that vibe thing, you know? And then we got really lucky with the, that ensemble cast. I'm, I mean, to, uh, just as a quick one last thing, I mean, Peter Mullen... This is great. One of the nicest things I've ever heard said to me about my creative work it was said by Peter Mullen and David Caruso. So Caruso says to me over drinks or dinner or whatever the hell it was, you guys should write another movie. I'm like, well, yeah, maybe we will. And he's like, no, no, no. This is Dostoevsky. You understand? I don't read this ever. And I'm like, wow. You know, I mean, say what you want. The man has been up to the mountain, down the valley, and then back up on the mountain. He's been around the block. He knows what he's fucking talking about. And to have him say something like that, that was great. And then Mullen said to me, you know why I took the pictures? Because I saw this as a criticism of the American capitalist dream. I'm like, huh, okay, look at me. I'm smarter than I thought I was. I just wanted to make a horn. And you know what? He's not completely wrong. I mean, we had a little bit of that going. We knew a little bit about that, but we certainly really were just making a horror movie and trying to get keep people creeped out. But anyway, I really appreciate the fandom and, and your time, for that matter. We're back and we we're talking about session nine. You know, we've done a pretty good job of not bringing up Kubrick because I know Kubrick comes up like crazy both in the interviews and then also in the audio commentary for this movie. And any movie that uses title cards the way that they were using title cards, like Scary Wednesday, you know, is very similar to what we're seeing in The Shining. And then the whole idea of, you know, I, I've mentioned the asylum giving to these guys things that they think they might want seem very much like 
the Overlook giving Jack booze, giving Jack Lloyd to talk to, giving Jack these different things that he thinks that he needs or wants. So there's a nice Kubrick connection here, and even talking about the electronic music and the way that the score is just this ever-present, but to your point, Jed, not a hummable thing. You know, it, there's definitely parallels, but I don't think that this movie is just like a, you know, oh my God, this guy watched Kubrick way too many times and is just aping his work. I like that it stands on its own apart from that. Yeah, all those tracking shots through the asylum are like Overlook Hotel almost. They really add so much to the movie. You could, it could almost be, you could almost take out the dialogue and just show these guys wandering around the building, even the shots without anybody in them, uh, and get pretty creeped out. People who really love Stanley Kubrick, which just a lot of people who were just trying to follow in the master's footsteps, but not copy the master. I really liked the the documentary influenced shots of objects and places and broken things, and that became very interesting montages that said just volumes without really having to say a word. Yeah, when I was in film school, we let's see, illegally went into a place that was like, it was like a former school for kids. And I think they might've been troubled youngsters just based upon the color scheme of some of the rooms and the way that some of the rooms were set up because they would have these big observation windows to see in where the kids were playing and stuff. And that was really eerie just to see, like, especially when you would see like, uh, Stuff that looked like it had just been used yesterday, and then everybody just packs up and leaves. And you just have, like, crayons and papers and things just, you know, laying out like they had just been used. Even, like, talking about asbestos again, like, half of my high school was closed down because of asbestos when I was going there, or what it was closed down before I got there. And it was my mission over those four years going to high school to break into that part of the school and just to see what it was like not really caring about my health, apparently. And that was another thing where you went in and you would see like, you know, above the blackboard were, you know, words that were stapled up there, like somebody had decorated their classroom and it'd be like, you know, those who forget the past are doomed to repeat it. And it's just like, here we have, you know, nobody took the time to take this stuff down. Nobody took the time to take some of the books off of the shelves. It was just basically somebody probably came down one day and said, that's it. You know, we got to close this down, board of health, et cetera. And they just abandoned it, locked it up, closed it up. And it looked like it was being preserved, you know, other than the fine mist of uh, asbestos that hung in the air. That was it. It just was perfectly preserved. So, yeah, it's really super spooky. And to see these things like you're talking about that chair and to hear about like the hydrotherapy and all of these different objects that they have there for the patients that is some of the scariest stuff, just those shots of objects, shots of things without anyone else in the frame. Like Jed said, Session 9 gives us a vampire without giving us a vampire, and here it gives us ghosts without giving us ghosts. There's something terrifying about seeing a sign for the restaurant that's closed down, or going into a place and everything's about a decade behind in terms of like a cash register or the way they're handling things because it reminds you that, that time's passing and things have changed. And I think we kind of like to forget that. Well, that's Nebraska, isn't it? We actually did move to Iowa and also, yes, but yeah, there's a real question to this movie. I wrote it in the notes as far as like, can something be 
spooky without being supernatural? And I think the answer is yes. I think this movie verges on the supernatural, or you can take it as a supernatural film. But regardless, it's spooky 100% whether you read into it supernatural aspects or not. That's the main reason why I love this movie so much, is because I don't know that you can trot out a vampire or a werewolf anymore. I don't even think you can trot out a a Michael Myers. They're remaking him, but they're not remaking a genre there. I think ideas become become tired. And I think it's important to be able to go away from these tropes when they've kind of been milked and go to just things in reality and not explain it, but let the hidden symbolic weight of what we're dealing with creep up on somebody. I don't know that very many films do it better than Session 9, which is, I think the older you get, the more bills you have, you know, the more you've had a child with an ear infection, the harder this movie hits. Did you ever have a mullet, Chad? I, I did, absolutely. Mine was glorious. Glorious mullet. It curled out like Shelley Long in the Brady Bunch, and I'm not allowed to grow it back. I was growing my hair out, and I was so impatient uh, to get it grown, I didn't, you know, I wouldn't get haircuts in between. So my hair... It came straight down, and then it hit my shoulders and bounced off at, like, 45-degree angles. Yes. Uh, pretty fluffy. It's coming back. I know it's coming back in my heart. Wow. I didn't even have a rat tail. I was so unhip. Oh! <laughs> wow. All right, guys. We're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Carter McCoy. One to ten years sentence for armed robbery. First offense in the state of Texas. Wanted by the state of Ohio for assault with a deadly weapon and armed robbery. I think you'll like it with I think he got to you. At least I got to him. That's right. We'll be back next week with a first episode of our November 2018 series, The Getaway. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-host, Jed and Axel. Jed, what is the latest with you, sir? Uh, the latest is I've still 
just got uh, one one book available in English. Peckerwood is available. You can pick that up if you like dirty crime fiction. And I write the blog Hard Boiled Wonderland about crime fiction and film. Stop by anytime. And Axel, I know you've got a little one around these days. Are you uh, having time for other things as well? I probably don't have time, but I'm doing it anyway. When Evelyn's not driving me crazy and being the most adorable human being on earth i did get a story published in a anthology called zombie punks fuck off which involves zombies and punk rock post-punk music which i'm proud of that but my big thing right now is that my friend dave haunt and i started a podcast last year called super true stories and super true stories we take the worst documentaries we can find streaming for free and we watch them and it's kind of some ribbing There's also, I like to think there's a little bit of projection booth in there. We give these movies a chance. Some of them we actually end up liking in spite of ourselves. Some we do not. We ended up being more pro Tim Tebow than we thought. But about the time this is released, we're releasing a episode on ghost hunters and a ghost hunting show that might be the stupidest thing I've ever seen. And that's going to be a really good episode. So follow Super True Stories on social media and go to supertruestories.com to download episodes, download them on iTunes, and I'll stop plugging myself. You can come on here and plug yourself whenever you want. You know, that's good, because sometimes I just really need to plug myself. Well, thank you again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-boot.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.